Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom, Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. On Thursday, May 28, 1918, 28-year-old Andrew Maggio called the New Orleans Police Department and screamed at the phone, Come at once. My brother and his wife have been killed. Captain John Dunn of the 7th Precinct and several patrolmen headed to the corner of Magnolia and Upper Line, where they found the usual small grocery and saloon with the residents in back. Pale and shaken, brothers Andrew and Jacob Maggio came out to meet the officers and led them toward a back bedroom, where Captain Dunn came upon the most gruesome crime scene he'd ever encountered. The proprietors of the little Italian grocery store he'd entered, Joseph and Catherine Maggio, appeared to have been hacked with an axe. And then Captain Dunn realized that Joseph was, was still barely alive. The ambulance from Charity Hospital had already been called and pulled up at the grocery store just after the police detail got on the scene, but it was too late. They entered the bedroom only to watch with Captain Dunn as Joseph Maggio choked out his last breath. His wife had already been dead for several hours. An autopsy revealed both had their throats cut and that Joseph had been hit twice with an axe, one swing fracturing his skull, uh, and then he'd been cut a couple times on his face and neck. Catherine had actually been hit with the axe, uh, but, but that doesn't mean – or she had not been hit with the axe, but that doesn't mean her death was any less gruesome. The police surmised, based on defensive wounds and body location, that she gotten out of bed to defend her husband from his killer. And then she was slashed seven times on the face, on the shoulder, on the hand, the last probably received as she attempted to protect herself from the deadly razor, slicing her over and over. The killing stroke had cut deep into the right side of her neck, slicing through the muscles, internal jugular vein, and uh, carotid artery, and cutting into her airway. A wound like that would have immediately dropped her to the floor, where her gas for breath would have sucked the gushing blood into her airway, my God, drowning her in her own blood as she simultaneously bled to death. The Axeman of New Orleans had struck, possibly for the first time, or if he was in fact the same man behind a series of axe attacks, uh, years earlier, he was now back and striking again. Someone or someones had previously shook up the city when they took meat cleavers to some Italians in New Orleans in 1910 and 1911. And those crimes were linked to a murder and an additional assault with a gun in 1912. 
The Axeman would captivate the people of New Orleans and terrorize Italian-Americans for the next 18 months and then explicably just vanish. We deep dive into what did happen. Look into what leading experts think happened. Also take a look at uh, uh, one of my favorite cities in America, New Orleans, in this Blood in the Big Easy, True Crime, History and Mystery 100th episode edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Time Suckers. Time to bask in the glory and the glow of Nimrod's fiery eyes that illuminate the cult of the curious. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. Praise Bojangles and Triple M. I'm the Master Sucker, a.k.a. Dan Cummins, and this is the 100th episode, Drunk as Fuck, Time Suck, on the Action of New Orleans. And I just wanted to get all that out before. It's been so hard to focus already. Uh, if you're a new listener, this is not a, <laughs> this is not a normal show. This is a celebration. Uh, 100 straight weeks to suck. The first episode recorded... In a Santa Monica apartment kitchen table, uh, in, on, on a Santa Monica. That'd be weird for, to be recording inside of a kitchen table. That'd be a humble beginnings, man. Humble and cramped beginnings. Recording a podcast inside of a fucking table. That's how I walked to school both ways uphill. Um, no, but it, it was a show no one had, in the podcast world had the slightest interest in. And by the way, again, if you're a new listener, man, uh, normally... Don't drink at all. Normally drink coffee for the show, but this is this is the drunk as fuck suck. People wanted a, a drunk history type vibe, and so I'm already, uh, I think, three hurricanes deep and a shot deep to begin the episode. Um, hurricanes, I guess, have a lot of rum in them. Never had them before, uh, I don't think. But but anyway, initially the show was a podcast uh, uh, that no one in the podcast world had the slightest interest in. Uh, a show that I did believe enough in to have a, have a logo design and website built before it ever launched, and then thank God you gave a shit about it too. And that's why we, we uh, record now in the Suck Dungeon in Coeur d'Alene, surrounded by wonderful artwork, books, military challenge coins, man, posters, all the love you guys have been sending in. Uh, you know, now we have a professional audio engineer and a damn good one recording today's show instead of my jackass. Uh, you know, the first episode was listened to by like a, maybe a few hundred people. First week it was released based on current trends, maybe 75, 80,000 will hear this episode in the first week. It's fucking incredible. Uh, and then it'll probably end now because people are like, that's fucking, he's drunk now. And now he's drunk. Now we, we don't care anymore. Um, now, nah, but in the beginning, it was just me. Then you joined. You started helping, started sending in topic suggestions, suggesting how to improve the show, asking for merch that led to the wonderful designs I now see in the crowd at the amazing shows that you guys make the best I've ever had. You started asking for extra bells and whistles that led to me signing off on the creation of a new website, an app built by the listeners that we're still building. Uh, some of you, you know, started volunteering your time to help with social media and emails, help with research. You encouraged me to launch a Patreon account that you signed up to support, to fund the show, which led to a full-time employee, which led to, you know, Joe leaving the most popular radio station in Spokane to grow what we're doing here. My wife, Lindsay, she left her career to help this show grow. And today, uh, you know, it's not only the hundredth episode when this comes out, it's also Lindsay and I's second wedding anniversary. Perfect timing. Happy anniversary, my beautiful, sexy, incredibly talented girl, sweet pea number two. Truly could not do this without you. You're the best wife, partner, stepmom to Kyler Monroe, fur baby mama to Penny Pooper, and little ginger, a.k.a. Gigi, a.k.a. Yeezus, that I could possibly even dream up. Uh, those of you around since the beginning have really seen this little project grow. Some, uh, you know, unexpected ways. Thanks for sticking around. Thanks for spreading the suck. Thanks to Time Suckers also and, and fellow Coeur d'Alene small business owners uh, who just got in the game a few months ago. Craig and TJ, who own and operate the wonderful New Orleans-inspired restaurant, 10 over 6. How perfect for this show. 726 North 4th Street, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Uh, they heard about today's topic, celebration. They wanted to cater it. 
So they brought dinner for Joe, Lindsay, and I. They're getting me fucked up on hurricanes. I, I had some crawfish etouffee, some beignets, and uh, yeah, man. And I'm looking forward to seeing some old faces and some new ones this week in Chicago. Next week in Denver. Next week in Denver also for the uh, – wait, no. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. This week in Chicago. I can't remember what's happening. Uh, uh, next week in Denver, we're also doing the, the live Time Suck on the Sunday. Thanks for supporting the stand-up tour in addition to the Suck. Uh, I'm actually releasing my first vinyl record some some limited edition vinyl pressings of Maybe I'm the Problem on Romanus Records. It's so cool to hear it on vinyl. Uh, a month from now on September 13th as well. I've, I've been wanting to release a vinyl record for like a decade. And how did Romanus find me? The label owner, uh, Chris Banta, indie rock champion, vocalist of Brother Oh Brother, is a time sucker. And his band is fucking dope. And if you guys hadn't have spread the suck, it wouldn't have spread to Chris. Uh, wouldn't have led to the, to the vinyl record. My son Kyler now wants to work for Time Suck when he's older. Uh, he talks about it all the time, man. So crazy, man. Poured a lot of love into this suck and gotten way more back than I ever thought possible. And uh, just so you guys know, Club After Club tells me you're, you're the, like, the most amazing, intelligent, well-behaved fans out there on the fucking comedy scene. Like, for real. Couldn't be more proud to be part of this tribe. It's been, it's been very surreal. <laughs> now let's get to today's episode. An episode dedicated to the memory of time sucker Andrew Paul Wood, who sadly left us this past week and who has traveled to the, to the great mystery that awaits us all. More details on Andrew next week. Sorry for being mysterious, but I'm just not in the right frame of mind to properly talk about him today. But I also didn't feel right about, you know, not saying anything about the passing of his sweet soul. So let's get to it. All right. Today's tale takes place in New Orleans. Smack dab in the middle of Tennessee. New Orleans is actually uh, the capital of Tennessee. Has been ever since New, uh, you know, Tennessee became a became a state in 1981. Uh, I know quite a bit about Tennessee. It sits up uh, in my neck of the woods, in between Montana and Hawaii. My wife Lindsay and I and the kids Kyler Monroe spent, uh, you know, spring break in New Orleans a few months ago. Spent a whole week in the French Quarter. Didn't want to leave. And yes, I do know that uh, New Orleans is in Louisiana. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I felt like uh, I felt like our our, our guests Craig and, and TJ and Lindsay are probably like what is he that fucking drunk already? He thinks New Orleans is in Tennessee. Nah, some Louisiana down on the on the Bracus Lake Pontchartrain leads into the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, I enjoy imagining new listeners though, just wondering for a second, like why why are people listening to an educational podcast narrated by some idiot who doesn't know where New Orleans is? He doesn't even have a loose understanding of U.S. geography. Uh, New Orleans, one of the cities I've traveled to where I've thought, yeah, I could live there. Yeah. Uh, not, not sure I could live there year round. That humidity is oppressive. And, and I'd probably quickly go from being a tourist to someone who thinks the city is being ruined by tourists. I'd be one of those people. But I, but I could at least live there like half the year, eat a lot of gumbo, crawfish, jambalaya. It's a magical place that, uh, that doesn't remind me of any other place. Not, not every city is like that now. Most cities, sadly, no longer like that. Like, I've actually forgotten in moments where I am because the town I'm staying in looks almost identical and feels even more identical to the, to the last city I was in. Same stores, uh, same stores, same, same type of people, same bumper stickers, same vibe. Uh, New Orleans doesn't really remind me of anywhere else. And, and the few times I've been, it's like it puts a spell on me, man. Like, like, like normally, I don't give two shits about chicory. I have to Google what chicory even is because I, uh, I forget since the last time I've had it. It's a, it's a forage crop for livestock. And the roots of this little flowering plant can be used to stop your bleeding. Do you know that? If you, if you any kind of wound, like if you really hurt yourself, if you can, get, if you can rub chicory on it, uh, you'll live forever. No, I don't, know, I don't know what I'm talking about right now. 
No, it's a, it's a coffee substitute. And odds are, if you've had chicory coffee, you've had it in New Orleans. And when I'm in New Orleans, all I want to do is, uh, is drink that chicory coffee. Goes to my beignets. Those wholeless, soulful donuts drowning a stupid amount of powdered sugar. Oh, man, I had some tonight. I had some tonight. It made me miss New Orleans even more. I normally could care less about jazz, but suddenly when I'm in New Orleans, I'm fucking so into jazz. I uh, think about how I need to become like a jazz expert. Not like wear a beret. I don't even know if that's what jazz people do, but I don't want to be like that kind of jazz guy. But I want to be able to like be like the guy who's like, oh, man, yeah, I know I like Bunk Johnson. Yeah, man, I'm fucking, I'm way into Bunk. Like, uh, you know, actually know who Bunk is. Right now, I, I, look, I Googled who is a New Orleans jazz legend, and Bunk came up, and I just put that in my script. Must get more jazz. Well, the Axeman, uh, he was very into jazz, very into it. More on that in a bit. New Orleans is a fun town. Maybe the most fun town in the whole country, like a festive town known for Bourbon Street, women flashing sweet boobs for cheap beads, a huge annual Mardi Gras celebration, huge St. Patrick's Day celebration that lasts for a hell of a longer than a day. Uh, you know, lasts for like a, a week or more. New Orleans is almost synonymous with drunken festive celebration. How fitting is that for how I feel right now? So to me, it seems even more fucked up that someone terrorized this popular city. Like, like a lot of serial killers have terrorized the Pacific Northwest, which frankly, uh, it, I mean, it's never okay, clearly, but it, but it kind of makes sense to me. Like it's dark and dreary, you know, for, for months out of the year, for most of the year. Like I, like I imagine the soul of a serial killer to be dark and dreary. But New Orleans, come on, it's party central. And look, look I, and, I, and I know that because of a few particularly rough neighborhoods, New Orleans actually does have one of the highest murder rates in the nation. But still seems like the axe man wasn't just attacking the city. He was attacking the heart of fun itself. So let's, let's look a little into the history of New Orleans up until that point uh, that the axe murders occurred, uh, how the Big Easy got started, what did it become by the 20th century. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a quick break that you won't even know about because I'll be right back after the intro for this next segment. I'm going I'm to use the bathroom. I'm going to have another drink. Why not? And then we're going to roll right into the murders of the Axeman in today's Drunk as Fucks Time Suck New Orleans Axeman Timeline. Where's the, where, where is the fucking button? Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. Sixteen eighty-two. What happened? I don't know. Email me. You tell me. How about we play that game today? I throw out numbers, and then next week you find out what happened with those numbers. Now, sixteen eighty-two, Louisiana claimed for the French crown by explorer Robert. Cavalier sur de la Salle. Uh, in, in a city, La Nouvelle New Orleans, not, not La Nouvelle Orleans, was founded in 1718 by Jean Baptiste Lemoine de Binville. Fuck. New Orleans developed around the uh, Vouquette, the old square in English, a central square from which the uh, French Quarter evolved, a place me, Lindsay, Kyler, and Monroe ate beignets. We, uh, Monroe ate so many beignets, Momo did. We saw Colonel Benny. Called her Benny. Uh, and I forgot my drink. So hopefully one of the one of the fine folks out, outside of the uh, room I record in can, oh, yeah, there we go. Here's Craig. Thank you, Craig. Here's Craig from 10 over 6 with my little festive hurricane. Uh, I wonder if people drank hurricanes back in 1723. I don't know. But you know what I do know? That the crescent of high ground above the mouth of the Mississippi became the capital of the French colony. How about that? The Crescent City. Another one of, the New, of New Orleans' nicknames. It became a vital hub of trading and commerce. Of course it did. It's situated just north of the mouth of the big old Mississippi River. Do you guys know that the Mississippi River is over 17 miles long? 
Uh, I think it's actually, it's actually over 2,000 miles long. Uh, it's Chief River in the second largest drainage system, drainage system in North America, second only to the Hudson Bay drainage system. 1763, Spain took control of New Orleans after the signing of the Treaty of Paris, beginning a 37-year rule that left a lasting mark on the city's street names and architecture. The flat tile roofs, tropical colors, ornate ironwork of the French Quarter are Iberian touches brought over from Spain. In order to prevent fires, Spanish-controlled government mandated that the stucco, that stucco replace wood for construction material, and that all buildings be placed near the street and near each other. Uh, that doesn't seem to me to help with fire. Like, why would you want the buildings closer to each other? How does that, 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 that I would think that would spread fire, but that's what they said. Uh, where there used to be yards and open spaces surrounding buildings, uh, the French Quarter now rendered both more intimate and more secretive with continuous facades, arched passageways, gorgeous rear gardens and courtyards hidden from street view. Man, those hidden gardens, I was fascinated by those things walking around the French Quarter. Uh, blocks with, with backs of the homes actually buttoned up against the outside street. The front of the home faces the inside of the courtyard. Uh, walking out front to like a hidden little garden, really only to be able to, uh, to be able to be seen by like a few neighbors. You know, you head out the back door to the hustle and bustle of the city. Very unique. Gives it a lot of charm. Uh, for almost four decades, New Orleans was a Spanish outpost, an important trading cultural partner to Cuba, Haiti, Mexico, uh, before reverting back to French rule. This period also reflected Spain's more liberal views on race that fostered a class of free people of color. 1800, the Spanish ceded Louisiana back to France only to have Napoleon sell the city in what was the Louisiana Territory to the United States three years later as a part of the $15 million Louisiana Purchase, April 30th, 1803. Uh, being under French and Spanish control all the way to 1803 after being founded in 1718 really gave it some European flair. Like while New York and Philly and Boston, all the East Coast cities were Americanized much earlier, New Orleans continued to be a Western European outpost. Uh, while, while a U.S. territory before the Civil War, New Orleans became a destination for slave trading as well as a vibrant cotton market because New Orleans had different owners in a relatively short period of time. You know, Spain, France, U.S., uh, Spanish, French, and African people intermingled, produced a Creole culture. Now, historically, Creole was used in early generations to refer to colonists of French descent who had been born in Louisiana and were thus native to the territory compared to new immigrants. It then meant exclusively people of European descent. Uh, it also was used for uh, for for African slaves who were who were born in Louisiana, as opposed to those born in West Africa, and transported from there. Uh, French Creole became the term for those of exclusive French descent after there grew a Creole population of mixed ancestry. Uh, many multiracial Creoles of French descent also called themselves French Creoles. It's a little, it's a little confusing, to be totally honest. Uh, Creole came to describe everything from a style of music featuring both European and African influences to a specific style of cooking. Jambalaya is a Creole dish. I, I used to confuse Creoles with Cajuns. They're very different. Uh, we touched on Cajuns in the mystery of the Oak Island. Side. Cajuns originated as a small group of French-Canadian dirtbags with a strong cultural interest in bestiality and inbreeding and no interest in hygiene or dental care. The fucking swamp people uh, moved to the swamps of Louisiana and when Canada chased them out of the Maritimes of eastern Canada, uh, formerly known, of, uh, known as uh, Acadia, uh, thinking that they weren't even human, thinking they were subhuman monsters with only rudimentary language skills, and they were tired of them scaring their kids. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. Cajuns are an <laughs> ethnic group that began in eastern Canada, French settlers who formed the colony of Acadia, lasted from 1604 to 1713. Now, Acadia included the maritime provinces, parts of Quebec, even parts of Maine. They were kicked out of Acadia after Britain conquered the area in the mid-18th century, and they just wouldn't swear allegiance to the British crown. 
They didn't care it was conquered. They were like, nah, we don't like it. We don't like the British. They kept forming militias, kept attacking the British. So they were banished and they headed down to Louisiana, which was under French control at the time. So they're like, all right, you guys aren't French. Well, we're going to find a place that is French. And that's how they made it to Louisiana. And they made it to uh, like a mostly southern Louisiana. And today, a large section of southern Louisiana is known as Acadiana, a French Louisiana region that comprises 22 of Louisiana's 64 parishes. Parishes being Louisiana's equivalent to counties. They got to do everything a little different down there. Most Cajuns did not end up in New Orleans, uh, preferring the rural areas of the, of the state instead. They're, they're kind, Cajuns are kind of somewhat like Louisiana's version of, of like pineys. Well, look here now, I got some pick. Taste this pick ever did lick out of my woman's beard. Well, look here now, with a full belly, I made a butt baby with a Cajun woman on mine. And it had crawfish claws for hands, and a Cajun baby alligator tail, and a swamp, <laughs> swamp rod knocker for her head. Woo! Yahoo! All right. Uh, that was tougher than I thought to sing, you know? Uh, <laughs> the piney, uh, turns out the, the piney song, not created by a professional musician. A lot of people think that the piney rhythm, like the piney song, was created by someone who's probably won multiple Grammys. But I, I just came up with it, and it, I don't know that it quite works in real musical time. And I had to do it on the drunk as fuck suck. Uh, now back to establishing some damn historical context for New Orleans. All right, let's move over to 1820. So, so we have Creole people. Uh, we have uh, European-Americans, uh, Africans, mostly from West Africa. Small Native American population. And then the 19th century brings waves of new immigrants from Europe. Foreign French continued to arrive as well as the Spaniards and Cubans. Café du Monde at Jackson Square was Spanish in its origins, not French. Love me some Café du Monde. Uh, those little sweet fried uh, fritter beignets with so much powdered sugar. Cafe Dumont, over 12,000 Yelp reviews, by the way. I thought that was impressive. And still has four stars. It's a must stop. And it's open 24 hours. So you can either watch super hammered, super hammered tourists uh, like stuff beignets in their, in their faces that are about to vomit or be one of those dizzy happy people. Okay. So uh, the largest waves of the 1820, though, is what I was trying to get to. Largest waves of immigrants came from Ireland and Germany. From 1820 to 1870, the Irish and Germans made New Orleans one of their main immigration ports. Uh, second only to New York, far ahead of Boston, Philadelphia, or Baltimore. I didn't know that, man. I, I, I'm guessing that's why there's such a large St. Patrick's Day celebration now, because there's a lot of Irish immigrants who came to New Orleans. New Orleans, first city in America to host a significant settlement of Italians, Greeks, Croatians, uh, and Filipinos. Just before the opening of the 20th century, thousands of Sicilians came to New Orleans. Huh. Uh, in the early 20th century, New Orleans was still <laughs> – I can't remember about the Filipinos part because I wrote Filipinos as a joke at one point. I don't know if it made it to the final draft. Now I'm questioning the Filipinos things. I don't know that a large Filipino population <laughs> made it into New Orleans in the 19th century. I don't think so. I think, but Italians, Greeks, and Croatians, that part's true. In the early 20th century, New Orleans was still very French. Uh, one 1902 report described one-fourth of the population of the city speaks French in ordinary daily intercourse. That's how they wrote it. While another two-fourths is able to understand the language perfectly. A century later, uh, after its, a century after its American takeover, the culture is still predominantly very French. Uh, New Orleans happened in place in the early 20th century. By 1900, the city streetcars were electrified. New Orleans jazz was born in its clubs and dance halls. A revolutionary way to combine ragtime, blues, spirituals, and American songbook into something brand new and soul stirring. Man, ragtime, I would rather be, I think, just like held down and tickled than have to listen to a lot of ragtime. I like a lot of music. Fuck, I don't think I've ever heard a ragtime. I'm like, yeah, 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 turn it up. Turn up, turn up, hey, 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 turn up that ragtime. That's fucking, that's a hot jam. Is that, do people say that? 
It was the 12th largest city in America, 1900, with almost 300,000 people, just a few thousand less than San Francisco, Pittsburgh, and Cincinnati. Uh, and, and then inventor A. Baldwin Wood created the screw pump in 1913. Powerful, ingenious mechanization that allowed New Orleans to develop much of the swamp that surrounded the city and grow even more. Uh, this new pump technology drove the ambitious draining of low-lying swampland located between the city's riverside crescent and Lake Pontchartrain. New levees and drainage canals meant that many residents could now live below sea level, which, which now is one of those things where it's like, okay, cool, but god dang it, you know, hurricane season fucking pretty rough when it comes to being below sea level. Okay, so also in the early years of the 20th century, old French Quarter is, starts taking turn for the worse. Turns, starts turning into an outright slum. Uh, a lot of its uh, once elegant buildings now divided into tenements, rented to the poor, notably the first and second generation Sicilian immigrants, who by according to one estimate made up uh, 80% of the resident population of the French Quarter in 1910. So the French Quarter, really the Sicilian Quarter in 1910. In the years during and just after World War One, artists, writers also began to move into the area surrounding Jackson Square. You know, they were attracted to cheap rent, faded charm, colorful street life. Artists, man, when, when we start moving into your neighborhood, you know it's going to shit. It's going to start getting real bohemian, going to start smelling like that reefer, going to start smelling less deodorant. Mm-hmm. Okay, the European-Americans concentrated their numbers in a— uh, in new uptown neighborhoods, uh, upriver of Canal Street, a ride on the St. Charles streetcar could take a visitor away from the economically struggling French Quarter. The streetcar, the oldest surviving trolley in the U.S., was constructed to connect those two 19th century settlements. Okay, so now we've made it up into the time of the Axeman attacks. And, uh, and before we go further, time for today's first sponsor. Time Suck Today is brought to you by Pootie and Juju's 17th Annual Mississippi Jazz Cruise. August 28th, 2018 through... May 1st, 2019, celebrating the intertwined early 20th century of New Orleans and America's most successful comic book. Numerous issues of Pootie and Juju were set in New Orleans in the early to mid-1900s. Uh, there was issue 76 in 1919, Steamboat Pootie. Uh, when Pootie is randomly offered the job of Steamboat Captain, when the current captain of the Steamboat, he and Juju have gone on for vacation, uh, Captain Tooley King Crab McWhistlecrinkle, the only man to ever steal the Delta Power Bottom, Decides to follow his own dream of building windmills that power rural sock puppet factories. Now, this issue launched one of the phrases that did not stick. Grab my jackstaff like you mean it, Juju. A jackstaff is a short flagpole at a ship's bow uh, on which a jack, a.k.a. a small flag, is flown. But, you guys, on schoolyards, the phrase became associated more with self-pleasure, wink, wink, than any type of nautical accessory. Another famous uh, New Orleans Pootie and Juju episode was issue 42, uh, released in 1914, called Jambalaya Juju. Now, in this beloved ep- issue, Juju enters a Cajun cooking contest, wins a trip to New Orleans for two. But instead of bringing Pootie, Juju brings their neighbor, Dr. Tinky Tango. Now, Dr. Tinky Tango was a noted custodial historian. No one knows more about the history of American janitorial work than Dr. Tinky Tango. And he'd also spent time as a youth on Chicory Farm. And Juju felt like his familiarity with Louisiana would help his chances of taking home the grand prize. Little did he know that Pootie's last-minute sabotage attempt of dumping an alarming amount of paprika and cayenne peppers into Juju's crawfish etouffee gave it just a kick it needed to win and also spawned the temporarily popular saying, Hot fire, Dr. Tinky Tango! Pootie done put the pow in the wow! Now, of course, that's not today's sponsor. But we do have a real one. All right, Joe, put some of that, put some of that sweet sober sauce on this next spot. 
Today's Time Suck is brought to you by Audible. Audiobooks are a great sidekick for summer activities like hiking, running, road tripping, enjoying downtime outdoors and more. And with the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, Audible lets you fill your summer with more stories like the ones I've listened to to research Time Suck episodes, like Inside the Mind of BTK, the true story behind the 30-year hunt for the notorious Wichita serial killer, Heavier Than Heaven, a biography of Kurt Cobain, Apocalypse Not, Why Everything You Know About 2012, Nostradamus and the Rapture is Wrong, All Be Gone in the Dark, One Woman's Search for the Golden State Killer, and The Axeman of New Orleans, The True Story by Miriam C. Davis, the source for much of today's research on The Axeman of New Orleans Time Suck. As an Audible member, you'll get a credit every month good for any audiobook, regardless of price, and unused credits just roll over to the next month. And if you don't like your audiobook, you can exchange it. No questions asked. Plus, your books are yours to keep. You can go back and re-listen anytime, even if you cancel your membership. So start a 30-day trial, and your first audiobook is free. Just go to audible.com slash timesuck or text timesuck to 500-500. That's audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E dot com slash T-I-M-E-S-U-C-K. Or text timesuck to 500-500. You can do it with audiobooks. Link in today's episode description, easy one-click button in the TimeSuck app and on the website sponsor section. Hey, guys, I don't know uh, if you noticed this, but um, I, I, if I sound a little more coherent there, uh, I'm getting, we recorded that earlier. We didn't know if Audible would want to hear me drunk. So, got you! Ha-ha! I got you, Audible. But I, I really do like them. So, you know. Hey, after fun and silliness and awesome sponsorship, time to break down New Orleans early 20th century uh, with, Italian, with Italian immigrants. And, uh, and, but I also needed another drink. So I left that out there. Oh, and I bet it's Craig. Yay. Ah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. He just said, uh, Craig brought another drink in. Uh, okay. Uh, in order to understand the Axeman attacks, you have to understand molecular biology. How do atoms relate to fucking arms and legs? Who knows? No, you have to understand the social situation of Italians, in particular, Sicilians in New Orleans at this time. Most of the Axman's victims were Italian grocers. Very, very specific and unusual target demographic, by the way. Just, Bobby, why do you hate Italians so much? For the last time, Winston, I don't hate Italians. I hate Italian grocers. I'm sick of the meatballs and the pasta and the bread loaves and most of all, the olive oil. If I see one more bottle of olive oil... I'm going to fucking take an axe to an Italian grocer. Time plus tragedy equals comedy. I only feel comfortable saying that because it's been so long ago. In the, ni- in, the, in the late 19th and early 20th century, Italians, about, about 80% of whom were Sicilians, brought into Louisiana and Mississippi to work in the cotton and sugarcane fields. And they didn't fit in very well uh, with the black-white dichotomy of the segregation of the South. They, they were not black, but they were also not considered white. Uh, most of them weren't content to stay laborers. Uh, these immigrants tended to work very hard, live on very little, save every dime, go into business for themselves as soon as they could, uh, often starting as peddlers or fruit vendors, working up there into grocers. Man, racism, man. Fear of the unknown, right? Same shit going on today. Man, in the early 20th century, it was, it was a primarily French-based culture, not liking the new Italians. Not liking those Italians taking over their neighborhoods. Now in the U.S., well, you had the descendants of primarily Western European white settlers terrified of the Mexicans taking over their neighborhoods, like, like my elderly white neighbor, Jim. Same shit, different era. 
what's funny to me is that the uh, is that many Mexicans have a lot of Spanish blood, a Western European nation, just a thousand miles south of England, and every bit is European. But people are like, nah, ha, huh? no, they're the Mexicans and they're different, and I don't understand it, and I'm my ancestors are English. Well, I don't. It's 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 such nonsense, such nonsense. Anyway, by 1900, New Orleans had the largest Italian community in the South. About 20,000, count the children of the immigrants that uh, lived in New Orleans. While plantation owners uh, liked their work ethic, they didn't like their upward aspirations. Planters grumbled that they couldn't keep Italians in the field because in a couple years, they would have, quote, laid by a little money and are ready to start a fruit shop or grocery store at some crossroads town. By 1900, small Italian-owned businesses are beginning to spring up all over Louisiana, further drawing the ire of the previous settlers of New Orleans. As the attitude of the newly arrived Italians towards African, or no, it, uh, is the is the attitude of the newly arrived Italians towards African Americans. Italians didn't seem to mind working along African Americans in the fields, and, and this pissed a lot of white people off. Like they didn't understand the racial hierarchy of the South, and, and their willingness to, to to do so made them no better than quote Negroes, Chinese, or any other non-white groups in many Southerners' eyes. Like think about how absurd that is. <laughs> These Italians were looked down upon. Partly because they were not interested in being as racist as their other white counterparts. Humans, man, we can be such insane meat sacks. So much shit to get like legitimately worked up about, and then we're just we're just worked up because we don't understand the culture of someone who lives next door to us because it doesn't happen to be ours. Ah, fucking drives me. Will we ever get better? Will we? Like I hope so. Uh, part of why part of why I get motivated with this podcast, man. It's like. It's that, there's so many things that are so silly that we get worked up about. Anyway, Sicilians generally uh, posing as dark, uh, generally possessing a darker complexion than Italians from further north on the Italian peninsula, often considered not white, nothing but quote black dagos. No, this is not lost on a contemporary observer that uh, that even African American laborers distinguished between whites and Italians and treated their fellow workers with, as one described it, a sometimes contemptuous, sometimes friendly first name familiarity they would never have dared employ with other whites. Now, this notion that Dagos know better than, quote, Negroes helps account for growing prejudice against Italian immigrants in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, they faced suspicion, even the occasional lynch mob. And the French Quarter, the oldest section of the city, had now become an Italian neighborhood. By the early 20th century, so many Sicilians congregated in the lower French Quarter near the river that the area from Jackson Square to Espinalade Avenue between Decatur and uh, Chartres uh, was known as Little Palermo. And by the early 20th century, Italians were taking over the New Orleans corner grocery business. Still, uh, a lot of those uh, little corner grocery stores in NOLA today. Man, they're fucking adorable. I don't, I don't know how they make enough money to survive, but I hope they stick around because they had so much charm and character to the amazing uh, neighborhoods, you know? Italians owned 7% of grocery stores in New Orleans in 1880. But by 1900, 19% were Italian-owned. By 1920, they ran fully half of all grocery stores in the city. And long before the axe killings of some Italian grocers, other Italians had been murdered in New Orleans for being Italian. On October 16th, 1890, we step back for a second, New Orleans Chief of Police, David Hennessy, he was murdered at his home. And as he died, he said, the Dagos got me. And then the police arrested a number of Sicilians who were tried in two groups. Then after a set uh, of acquittals, a mob stormed the jail on March 14th, 1891, lynched some of those who had been acquitted, as well as some of those who had yet to be tried, murdering 11 of the accused. It was one of the largest ethnic lynchings in U.S. history, actually caused Italy to cut off diplomatic ties with America, which sparked rumors of war. Press coverage of the trial and lynching introduced the Italian mafia to U.S. citizens, kicking off the stereotype that all Italians are either in the mafia or have mafia connections by vilifying Sicilians in the press. The day after the lynching, the Times Picayune. The Times Picayune. That's a fun name to say. 
the New Orleans newspaper since 1837 published an editorial with the following excerpt. The sneaking and cowardly Sicilians, the descendants of bandits and assassins, who have transported to this country the lawless passions, the cutthroat practices, and the oath-bound societies of their native country are to us a pest without mitigation. Our own rattlesnakes are as good as citizens as they uh, or as good or as good citizens as they lynch law was the only course open to the people of New Orleans. Man, the fucking paper legitimizing a lynching of innocent people. Wow. Ah, and, and calling them no better than rattlesnakes. And that shit happens today. Whoever wrote that doesn't have a job tomorrow. You know, remember radio host Don Imus referred to the Rutgers women's basketball team. Remember that he said that horrible thing, called them nappy headed hoes in 2007 and CBS fired him, you know, as they should have stupid thing to say. Culturally out of touch dude trying to be funny, but then but referring to a, an entire race of people as nothing but thieves, pests, snakes, not trying to be funny. I mean, that's just pure hate. Acceptable back then. So, you know, all, the, all of this goes to show, I'm just trying to set up this tone that by the early 20th century, there is a deeply entrenched racial tension between Italians and other white, not Italian New Orleans residents. And that is what likely set the stage for the axe murders. Early in the morning, August 13th, 1910, Harriet Crudy woke up from a sound sleep to find the shadowy figure of a man standing over her with a meat cleaver, a man she'd never seen before, held up the mosquito netting around her bed with one hand, waved the bloody cleaver at her with another. He demanded money. He said, uh, I'll do to you what I just did to your husband. Now, this mosquito netting, man, that's something I didn't know about until recently. It's super common in New Orleans. Uh, the fam and I, Lindsay and the kids and I, toured some historic homes in New Orleans. I remember seeing this. In the pre-air conditioning days, of New Orleans, keeping all your windows shut and having no airflow meant that you were, uh, you know, turning your balls into a stew. It was a fucking sauna. Your ass crack was chronically very sweaty. So, you know, you open some windows, you get some, you get some airflow, you get some fans, leave them on all the time. But then you got mosquitoes. You got skeeters. Skeeters such a problem that to keep from getting eaten alive at night, you had mosquito netting draped completely around your bed like you were camping. Which I'm sure, which I think about making like climbing into bed drunk and then getting up to pee later. Such a nightmare. Like I wonder how many hammered New Orleans residents... Just got fucking tangled in their mosquito netting as they fell out of bed, you know, to trying to go to the bathroom. Anyway, panicking over uh, what he'd said about her husband, uh, Mrs. Crudy looked down, saw her bloodied partner lying still across the foot of the bed, screaming, you've murdered him. She reached under the pillow for a box containing $8, which was a lot of money back in 1910. She hands it over. The man with the cleaver wanted more. He said, is that all you got? I want all of it. She insisted that was all she had. She turned around, uh, no, I'm sorry, and then he turned around, stood out of the bedroom, threw the Crudy's combination grocery uh, store uh, residence, snatched up their, and this is random, he snatched up their pet mockingbird, grabbed the cage as he went, tossed the meat cleaver in the yard, retrieved the shoes he had taken off, climbed over the back fence, just and then just kind of leisurely walked down the block, uh, down uh, LaSep Street, reaches the corner, sits down on the doorstep, uh, he opens the latch on the bird cage, lets the bird fucking fly off. Then he deliberately rolls a cigarette, leans back on the stoop, and smokes it. Uh, this, this was cited in numerous sources. I don't know how, how they have all those details about exactly what he did, but never caught him, but whatever. Then he put on his shoes, stood up, sauntered down uh, Dauphine Street. Meanwhile, Mrs. Crudy, afraid that her husband was dead or dying, was desperately trying to shake him awake. Luckily, Crudy's injuries turned out to be far less serious than they'd first appeared. He'd been cut in the head on the chest, but neither one was life-threatening. The 40-year-old son of Italian, an Italian immigrant, uh, August Crudy, and his 29-year-old wife, Harriet, had opened their store on the corner of Royal and Lesseps Streets only a month before. It was located in the Bywater District of New Orleans, a block from the Mississippi River, just over a mile and a half east of the French Quarter. Crudy had been in the ice business. 
But he worked hard to save the money to buy his own grocery, a modest establishment in a modest neighborhood. August and and Harriet shared the small house with their two young sons, Jake and August Jr., and 18-year-old Arthur, Crudy's stepson. And they wondered why they and they wondered what they'd done in just a month like to provoke such an attack. The Crudy couldn't think of anybody who wanted to harm him. The police, however, were able to put together a suspect based on the accounts of Mrs. Crudy and a neighbor who happened to look out the window in time to catch a glimpse of the assailant. The police, looking for a man 36, 37 years old, five foot six inches tall, broad shoulder, clean shaven, dark hair, thick nose and lips, rough husky voice. He'd worn dark trousers, a loose blue working man's shirt, a black derby hat. And then less than a month later, an arrest is made. And John Flannery is charged in the attack. This is September 9th, 1910. John Flannery was an addict of cocaine and morphine, quote, fiend, the newspapers called him. Also a petty criminal with a history of burglary to support his drug habit. A previous arrest for assault, features that roughly tally with the description of the Crudy assailant. When he was caught breaking into a grocery store two weeks after the attack on August Crudy, uh, Mrs. Crudy was called down to police headquarters. She unhesitantly identified him as her husband's attacker. Police were able to connect Flannery with a series of other burglaries in which a railroad shoe pin, similar to the one Crudy's left in Crudy's grocery store had been used. The case against him seemed clinched, but did he really do it? He would never go to trial for the crime. At age 25, Flannery, quite a bit younger than the mid-late uh, to mid-late 30s man described by witnesses, doubts about his fitness to stand trial led to, uh, led to a commission to assess his mental condition. The commission consisted of two doctors, uh, and they concluded that Flannery's mental state had been compromised by drugs and alcohol, as mine is now. That he's suffering from disorganized schizophrenia, and that he was insane and irresponsible. This is a quote. A permanent menace to society. So 11 days after John Flannery is taken into custody on September 20th, a very similar crime occurs, which also means, I mean, did he do it? You know, right after he gets caught, uh, a, you know, the same modus operandi, uh, operandi, fucking whatever, M.O. Is it a different man? Or the same man who John was taking the fall for. He never did confess to the first attack. A man crept up to the grocery and residence of Joseph and Conchetta Rosetto shortly after 1.45 a.m. on the morning of September 20th, 1910. And I am going to push a button that will now signify that I have to go to the bathroom. Man, that's a pretty sweet button. I wish I had that button in life in general. How could that be? Like, things are getting, like, awkward. In a whatever social interactions, like, hey guys, hey, uh, hold on, hold on to that thought. I might be right back. Right after I hit this button, and then just go do what you need to do. Oh man, I'm starting to think this might have been a bad idea. I hope you guys are enjoying this because <laughs> I'm like, why would why would it be fun to listen to somebody fucking struggle through so many details? These are already these words are already hard to say, but anyway. A man crept up to the grocery store. I'm going back a little bit. I'm not, I know I'm repeating myself. And residents of Joseph and Conchetta Risotto. Risotto? Risotto. <laughs> Fucking, they're like the noodles. No, those are the rice. Risotto is like a food. It's a, it's a rice noodle food, I think. A man crept up to the grocery and residents of Joseph and Conchetta Risotto. Shortly after 1.45 a.m. on the morning of September 20th, 1910, Tonti Street and London Avenue was a rundown crime-ridden part of town. A mix of a poor Italian-American and African families. Uh, African-American families, this sparsely populated neighborhood on the outskirts of New Orleans hardly seemed part of a proper city at all. It was kind of like, like a bunch of pig pens, cow sheds, and barely passable dirt roads. This is where this crime happens. The Rosettos, both children of it- Italian immigrants, had done well for themselves. Their business was so successful that five years earlier, they'd been able to build a new grocery and bar room and add a pool room. Uh, the cottage they built alongside their business was, was bigger than any of uh, the, the other small grocers. 
It, it had the extravagance of both a parlor and a dining room, as well as a bedroom and kitchen. Uh, at 42 and 36 years old, Mr. and Mrs. Rosetto had been married for 17 years. Uh, with no children, they had only each other for company, were by all accounts a devoted, loving couple. And then early, the Tuesday morning of September 20th, some psycho showed up with a stolen meat axe, similar to a butcher's cleaver, but at three pounds, a little bit heavier. From the cow shed in the back, he snuck up to the kitchen, climbed through an unlatched window. Inside the house, he walked past the open door, leading the grocery. Entering the bedroom, the intruder went over to the woman's side of the bed and with a knife, sliced open the mosquito netting. Exposing the sleeping couple, he raised his weapon and then slammed it down into Mrs. Rosetto's face. Fuck! Can you imagine getting woken up like that? With the axe to the face. You're dead asleep one moment. Axe wound in your face next moment. Some sadistic stranger standing above you in the process of cutting you up some more. I can't believe, like, all the stuff we talk about in times so like this stuff really happens to people. You're asleep. You're just laying in bed. You're minding, you're fucking, you're just not even minding. Not only you're not even minding your own business, you're, you're sleeping in your house. And then someone hits you in the face with an axe. It's unbelievable. Truly hard to imagine a worse type of alarm clock than an axe to the face. The first blow smashes her right cheekbone. God! And then as Conchetta reflexively twists away from her attacker, he strikes again and again, cutting deep into the left side of her face, slashing her neck. This piece of shit. He then moves around to the other side of the bed and strikes her husband twice in the face. How did he not wake up? One blow slices clean to the cartilage of his nose. How do you not wake up? How hard of a sleeper are you? Like, I feel like sometimes I can sleep pretty hard, but I feel like if Lindsay got an axe to the face... I would like to think I would wake up on the first axe to the face. Ah, he must have been swinging that meat axe fast. Hits her several times, and he hits that dude several times. Violent intruder uh, then drops his meat axe into the tangled strands of the mosquito net. He runs off. He didn't take, uh, stop to take anything. He runs out to the pool room behind the kitchen, open the door leading out into the yard, heading down the, heading toward the fence in the front yard. Joseph Rosetto gropes his way to a dresser where he grabs a revolver, staggers to a side porch, fires two shots into the air, and then the help comes fast. Man, they hear the gunshots. An ambulance is called. When authorities arrive, the Rosetto's bedroom resembles, according to one paper, a slaughtering pen. Blood soaks the bed, smeared all over the floor. Traces of Mrs. Rosetto's hair cut by blows of the axe. What in the fuck? Lay bloody on the bedclothes. She's laying in her own blood, unrecognizable in gray pain, pleading for help. Other than a romantic rival he'd had for his wife years earlier, uh, Mr. Rosetto couldn't think of having any enemies. He knew of people who disliked him, mostly customers who, who had been refused credit, threatened him from time to time. Ah, that would suck. But didn't believe any of them would actually try to kill him. Over the next several days, the police questioned suspect after suspect without making any progress in catching the axe wielding assailant. Police determined that the meat axe used in the attack had been stolen from a butcher's stall in a local market several weeks previously. Nailed that sentence. And a, <laughs> a large butcher knife stolen from the stall at the same time it turned up a week or so ago at a, at a burglar grocery. Less than two miles from Rosetto Grocery. Mm, not as good on that sense. This made the crime even more puzzling. The criminal appeared to be a thief who had robbed one grocery without hurting anyone, as well as an assailant who viciously attacked the Rosettos without stealing anything. Uh, fortunately, the Rosettos do survive the attack, both of them. Conchetta would live another 30 years, dying at the age of 66 in 1940. Joseph died only two years later in 1912, at the age of 44. Well, the newspaper said that his death wasn't a direct result of the injuries he'd sustained. He was never the same after the September night. And it seems like his wounds, both physical and psychological, probably contributed to his decline. Was Joseph Rosetto the first person to be killed by the Axeman of New Orleans? Well, June 26, 1911, 
perfectly ordinary day for Joe and Mary Davy. They woke up early, had their grocery store uh, at Arts and Galvez Streets. Galvez Streets opened at 5.30 a.m. Spent a long day waiting on customers. Man, 5.30 a.m. Ugh. They were, they were still newlyweds, only been married for like five months. Mary went to bed early that night. Joe closed up by himself at about 10 p.m. After counting receipts for the day, he finally slipped under the mosquito netting and crawled into bed next to his sleeping wife at about 11 p.m. Sometime in the early pre-dawn morning of June 27th, violence awoke Mary, and she looked up to see a stranger in her bedroom. By the dim light of the, of the oil lamp burning in the corner of the room, she saw a man near her wardrobe. Joe only moaned in response. The intruder asked, where is your money? And Mary was too frightened to reply, so he grabbed a heavily porcelain mug and hit her hard enough on the side of the head to knock her unconscious. When she woke up, he was gone. She was in shock, and she didn't yet realize the extent of her wounds. She had cuts on her face and her right hand and arm. A short time later, a customer, used to her grocery store being open you know, already, knocked on the bedroom window. When, she, and when he asked to buy some bread, uh, she told him she couldn't sell him any bread yet because her husband's asleep. Uh, and his customer, he could see blood on her face. He knew something was wrong. So he, he rounds up a few other men. They enter the house a short time later. They discover Joe laying on his blood-soaked bed with a badly fractured skull. His breath is coming in gas. His brain is swelling as a result of trauma. Pressed against the respiratory centers in his brainstem, Mary is disorientated and shaking. The 5th Precinct Police Station, only a mile and a half away, they get a telephone call just after 6 a.m. A sergeant with a detailed patrolman hurry over to investigate. He took one look at the dying man, traumatized girl, and immediately had the couple taken to Charity Hospital. By 10 o'clock, over a half dozen investigators crowded into the grocery in his tiny living quarters to take an inventory of the crime scene. The intruder had pried open a window with the railroad shoe pin. Again! Climbed into the saloon. Uh, once he made his way into the store, he had raised the hinge section of the grocery store counter to uh, gain access to the door leading up to two or three steps in the residence. Uh, he went through the dining room after that uh, to get into the bedroom. In the bedroom, it was clear the intruder had hammered the grocer mercilessly, smashed his skull, Drenched in the bed in the bottom half of the mosquito netting in blood, Joe Davy had been attacked while he was asleep with no chance to fight back. The re- revolver still laying on the side table, untouched and useless. He'd been hit with such force that the impact of the blows had collapsed the top of the moss-packed double mattress in, in, in at a 15-degree angle. Skull fragments and bits of brain littered the sheets. God damn. After assaulting Mary, the assailant left the door, uh, uh, left by the door opening onto Art Street. As far as detectives could tell, nothing had been stolen. Despite his demand for money, the man hadn't tried to take the $64 in cash hidden under the pillow, an obvious place for a burglar to look. Uh, contents from the wardrobe and a trunk were scattered about. Mary's jewelry was undisturbed. Small amounts of money were still in drawers. Nothing indicated the attacker had robbed this place. The police find no weapon other than uh, those belonging to the Davies at the scene, the nature of Do- Joe Davies' wounds, and the similarity of the attack to Crudy and Rosetto. Uh, those crimes made everyone assume it was a cleaver of some sort. Uh, Davy's wounds, the inquest would later show, were caused by a blow with a sharp edge, through, though heavy blade, almost in the center of the head, crushing through scalp and bone. Man, uh, just such an injury as, as would have resulted from a blow with a butcher's cleaver. On Wednesday morning, the Daily Picayune, the New Orleans Picayune, uh, screamed fiendish cleaver abroad again. Mary repeated the story she'd first given detectives a little more coherently this time. She'd heard nothing until she woke to see the man ransacking the wardrobe. She remembered very little after being hit. Uh, she was clear that he had spoke English. Are you, are you sure about the man speaking English? Asked one of the detectives. Positive, she said. Unaccented English, she insisted, so she knew he wasn't an Italian. Even though she'd only glimpsed him by the light of the single, uh, you know, little, little uh, taper burning in the bedroom, Mary was able to provide a description of the man. He was white, clean-shaven, about five foot ten, Not especially strong-looking. Uh, he wore a blue jumper, working man's shirt, 
Black pants, no hat. He'd been moving soundlessly across the floor, so she thought he must have been barefoot. While she gave her testimony, her new husband dies from his wounds. Someone, possibly the man who would become known as the Axeman of New Orleans, had left her a 16-year-old widow, a 16-year-old widow pregnant with her now dead husband's child. After Joe Davy dies, the governor of Louisiana posts a $500 reward for information leading to the capture and conviction of the killer, but the reward would lead to no arrests. Eventually, law enforcement, for the most part, settled on chalking up the first few attacks to the black hand, a term many used at that time to refer to a certain type of extortion racket the Sicilian mafia used. And the term uh, came to refer to, like, you know, like, the, like, like mafia organization in general. The Matranga family, the Matranga crime family, was a mafia family from Sicily, one of the oldest American organized crime families in the record. They settled in New Orleans sometime in the late 1800s. By 1911, they're not alone. There was also the uh, Provenzo crime family. And these gangs, uh, they did offer local Italian businesses, quote-unquote, protection. Uh, protection really being extortion. You know, you, you could pay them or they could come fuck you up. What a great business model. To make, like, hey, hey, here's a, I have a business offer for you. How about you guys give me $100? And they're like, what? I don't want to give you $100. I'll take a drink real quick. I'm like, I don't want to give you $100. And they're like, well, here's the thing. You give me $100 or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fucking beat the shit out of you. All right, I'll give you $100. Man, extortion. Uh, and, and, and I guess, you know, theoretically a meat cleaver, not entirely out of the question for these kind of people. You know, May 16, 1912, the attack that the least amount of Axman experts attribute to him occurred, but some do think he was responsible, so it's worth including, uh, less than a year after Joe Davies' murder. And, and, and all of these murders are not a part of like, I don't know, if there's like an official Axman lore, but these are all the early ones, again, just to remind you guys, where the ones that would occur some years later are the ones that people think, yes, for sure, this is the Axeman. These are ones that maybe and or probably Axeman. Uh, so less than a year after Joe Davies' murder, murder, another Italian grocer dies in the middle of the night. Superficially, crime very similar to the attack on Davy. Young grocer, brutally murdered, sleeps, sleeping next to his wife. Yet the two murders, very dissimilar in one crucial way, uh, a way that indicated a different kind of criminal and a different type of motive, possibly. At 27, Tony uh, Sicambia was already a success. He'd, he'd learned the business as a boy in his Italian, or I'm sorry, in his father's uh, Carrollton grocery store. Now he's running his own grocery and bar, opposite of town. And uh, he's married to Mrs. Tony, as the locals called her, pretty 23-year-old Joanna. Uh, you know, they're well on their way to producing the hoped-for house full of children. Married not quite two years. Had one son. And then as he's sleeping in his bed on the morning of May 16, 1912, uh, you know, shit goes horribly wrong. Uh, 2 a.m., an intruder stacks a couple of soapboxes on top of each other, climbs up to the uh, to reach a kitchen window at the back of Tony and Joanna's house, opening the shutters, they raising the unlatched window. He crawls into the kitchen, entering the bedroom. The intruder attacks Tony, killing him almost instantly, inadvertently, inadvertently wounding Joanna. The baby sleeping next to them is unharmed. Now, how is this crime so different from the murders of uh, Joe Davy and Joe and Catherine uh, Maggio? Well, Tony Sicambria is shot to death. In the bedroom, the assailant uh, walked up to the bed, pulled the mosquito netting away, pointed his 38 caliber pistol at the sleeping grocer and pulled the trigger. And then fired again and again. Uh, he unloaded five shots into Tony before, before taking off. And then, and then also takes nothing. The first three shots enter Tony's back, caused him to jerk involuntarily, so the next two uh, hit with less accuracy, wounding him in the side and the arm. Doesn't take long, though, for internal hemorrhaging to kill him. He's dead by the time the ambulance arrives. Joanna... Uh, also ends up dying. She's killed accidentally. One bullet shoots right through her husband's body, strikes her in the hip, penetrates her abdomen. At first, everyone thought she would live, but the wound went septic because this is the time of terrible medicine, just, you know, whiskey, laudanum, saw. 
No good stuff going around medicine-wise. So she dies of uh, peritonitis 10 days after her husband, leaving little Jake to be raised by his grandparents. Some speculated because it involved another, another attack on Italian grocers must be the Axeman, even though a gun was used. And then also, six years later, a connection with this crime and some later definitive axe killings would emerge. So let's skip to that. May 28, 1918, Joe Maggio and his wife, discovered by the Maggio brothers, uh, some of Joe's brothers, after being struck with multiple axe wounds and also their throats sliced with a straight razor. This is the crime we opened today's episode with. Mrs. Maggio's head cut nearly clean off her body. An axe is left in the bathtub. While surveying the scene, detectives find an unusual message scrawled in chalk just a block from the Maggio residence that says, Mrs. Maggio is going to sit up tonight just like Mrs. Tony. Well, the Mrs. Tony they theorized referred to Scambra's wife, who was referred to as Mrs. Tony by some of their customers. The killer clearly referring to the 1912 murders. So either the same killer or person trying to connect the two crimes to throw heat off of himself. Uh, following this murder, the press runs with the Axeman from 1910 to 1912 as being back on the scene. Citizens, most likely Italian grocers are terrified. How much would that fucking suck if you're some niche business in your town? And then some killer shows up killing only people that, that, that do what you do. Like, can you imagine that? Like, you're one of 30 or 40 owners of a florist shop in Omaha, Nebraska. And then a serial killer starts showing up and starts killing specifically Omaha florist shop owners. Not like someone who works the florist shop. No, no. Specifically the owners. And the police can't catch them. And like, uh, like, like for me, I'm naturally a twitchy, high-strung person. Uh, if so, like, like even right now, earlier, just a little bit ago, you guys don't know this, but earlier, I'm going to the bathroom, and Lindsay came in and hit me with a ball. She threw something at me when I'm going to the bathroom. So then I, now I'm jumpy coming back to the room. Now I'm, all, I'm jumpy now. I keep expecting at any moment the door's going to open. <laughs> God damn it. Lindsay just did that. God. Here we brought you a different drink. Are you a special okay. glass? Okay. I got a special glass and I have a special drink. I don't know who, who made that glass. I don't remember. Joe, do you remember? Joe? Uh, you smell good. Who made the glass, Joe? Joe's also, everyone's oh, yeah, drunk here. Ryan? Huh? Something. Okay. Ryan something. This is fun. Hey, guys. Hey, in right your so office right now, right now, in the middle of the day, you're having so much fun listening to this. I'm talking about I'm trying to find talking about talking about Italian grocers getting murdered, Joe. I know. And it, look, and oh, damn, this is, so hard. This is very this is a very sensitive subject. It happened, yeah, it happened a hundred years ago. But there could be Italian grocers listening to this right now. <laughs> well, and, they get to have a good time, and they're not being murdered, so that's good. Uh, if I find out, I'll let you know. Joe's later. gonna let me know my headphones later. Who who gave me the special? Uh, it's like very heavy glass. It's like hand blown. Hand blown. Time suck colors. Time suck colors. Lindsay, why don't you just sit down and comment sometimes? Go ahead and have a seat. Oh, I gotta turn that shit on. Then I need my drink. Turn that shit on. One second. Okay, she'll come in in a second. Okay. Uh, Joe's gonna turn on the second microphone. You guys listening? I'm sure this is very fun for everybody right now, hearing all the background stuff that goes on to this. Uh, This is not a normal day. This is not a normal day. And again, if you're a new listener and you're like, "Fuck this show," yeah, agreed. You know, you you'd be terrified. And if and like if someone started killing podcasters in Coeurdeline, Idaho, I'd be fucking the jumpiest motherfucker ever. I would go crazy. I would start doing stuff like setting up a mannequin in the chair where I usually sit, like right now, and and, and I would play the recording of a previous podcast to make it look like I was making a new podcast. And I would try to lure the killer into attacking the mannequin so I could then attack the killer. Like in Home Alone. Kind of. You know, remember where he puts those mannequins on strings to make it seem like they're playing poker in the window? That, but then killing them. 
Okay, so initially, police look at Andrew Maggio, Joe's brother, as the primary suspect in the most recent killing. The murder weapon belonged to Andrew, who worked at a barbershop on Camp Street. It had taken two days before the murders became uh, because he wanted to have it professionally sharpened. So that is suspicious. Uh, is Lindsay's mic on? It's on. Now, now, full disclosure, uh, we are, are – this is the second time we have gone <laughs> – we brought Lindsay in, and she she somehow jinxed everything. Fuck you! And we just lost a half an hour of recording. That, that is not my fault. So I'm more drunk. I'm I'm sure it's going to be something about she's Polish. She's fucking Polish. She ruined fucking it. Fucking Polish orangutans. Uh, okay. So mm-hmm. he told the police that he didn't hear the attacks because he had gone to bed drunk the night before. He, he had been uh, you know at, at a party celebrating his enlisting in the navy. However, he was soon released after a statement. Didn't seem to hold any clues as to motive or timing. He had an account of an unknown man. That we looked around the grocery. Now we said earlier, yes, off. I guess on mic, off mic. That uh, that that kind of makes sense to you that he wouldn't hear things, that, right, that, right, that right. You, that you didn't hear things upstairs with the kids. You know, in the past when they go to the bathroom, and then and, and then that's when you're sober. I assume when I'm out of town. Well, sometimes I get really fucking hammered just while fucking you're gone. Hammered, just hammered to handle the kids. To handle the kids, or like I'm alone and I hear shit and I get scared. <laughs> So then I'm, I just drink and set the alarm. But you think this makes sense, though, that, like, if he's drunk, he's passed out. Yes. Probably not going to hear. Okay. Probably not going to hear anything. Okay. Okay. So then just a, less than a month later, the attacker strikes again, June 26, 1918. This time, he, he he brings paranoia in the city to a new level by attacking a grocer who's not an Italian. Now, was this still the work of the Axeman? Other than the Italian part, it does fit his MO. Most people think this crime was definitely the work of the Axeman, but it took a while for investigators at the time to get there. Uh, the aftermath of this crime is bananas. Now, now this, this next crime takes place at the People's Cash Store, a grocery owned by Eastern European immigrant Louis Besumer. Besumer? Besumer? Besumer. B-E-S-U-M-E-R. See? Like, how would you say that? Besumer. 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 Pe- pe- people Be-sumer. like make fun of me for my pronunciation, but when you're reading fucking word after word after word for two hours and you come across wackadoodle name— well, I, I wouldn't you're, call you're it. Just a, I wouldn't call it a wackadoodle name, but what I would say is that we don't really know, like Eastern European, like exactly where is he from. That would be right. A better clue. All we know is that he was dirty from Eastern Europe, right? No. Sorry, just a dog just came in. A dog just came in. Hi, baby. Fucking Gigi. Ginger Bell. I, I will put her down. Hey, hey. If hey. she doesn't, uh, if she interferes with this episode. All right. Gigi, all right. get out of here! I'll fucking kill you. Go, go by your new friend <laughs> TJ. <laughs> Gigi, Gigi is such a weird dog. When I just yelled at her, like uh, <laughs> she ran back towards me with her tail wagging. Like, hey, Dad, that's funny how you just said that. Dad, <laughs> Dad, I love you. That's how, that's how seriously even the dogs take me. Okay, so at some point early in the morning, probably just before dawn, based on the freshness of the blood found at the scene, someone had struck Lewis's mistress, Harriet Lowe. A woman investigated were first led to believe was his wife on the porch of their grocery store residence. So where's his wife? Uh, he didn't have a wife. He just he just presented Harriet as his wife because he was ashamed of his casual sex life. Yep, uh, you know that's stupid. The teens back in the 20th century, big no no, big taboo. Eh. Very different than now. Very different than now. So so and also different than now. Everybody living in stores back then. Right. We talked was, about this. Yeah, we talked about this on the on the unrecorded uh, part. But it's like th- that is interesting how things have changed so much in the last century. Where it's like you know you had a hardware store. Back in 1918, you didn't have Ace Hardware franchise. No. You had the Radziminski, you know, uh, hammer and screw set store. Correct. And you lived in the back or you lived above or you lived in the basement. 
not not the same now. Like all all of these crimes we're talking about today, almost every single one, the the person broke into a store slash residence, which is such a rare thing today. I mean, in a way, I think it's good that church is separated from a state, so to speak, right? Do you want right. to like? Do you want to just roll out of bed and be like, I'm at work? No, it's 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 a good sign of how like uh, life has come up for most people in most ways where. You, you can afford now, if you're a small business owner, for the most part, to mm-hmm, have mm-hmm. a separate residence from your actual business. Like, you can have two leases. Mm-hmm. But uh, but also sad in a way where I think that, like, like back then, there was a number of people who could afford to do it if they could also live there. Right, where right. Now, but there's more opportunity. Right. Right. Because now you're, you're not going to open a hardware store or a grocery store uh, because you can't afford it. And it's not about like not being willing to live there. It's about Walmart. It's about Target. It's about Costco. It's about all the other grocery stores, Safeway, Albertsons, all those other things, you know, like, you know, like uh, Kroger, wherever, wherever you live in the U.S., you know, uh, that's your store, you know, that your Tidyman's, your Walla Walla, your, your Ralph's. What's, it, what's the one? Uh, Wawa. Wawa. Wawa's a gas station kind of thing that. Yeah, but it's like a. But it's, you know, it, but, but Wawa gas is comparable to a grocery store, a uh, neighborhood grocery exactly. store. Exactly. Absolutely. A grotto. A gr- okay, but now, but now it's a, uh, now it's franchised. Right. Back then. It, bodega, I mean, not a fucking grotto, a oh, bodega. I, I, I love how I was like, yeah, 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 grotto. I was just going along because I didn't know what grotto meant. And when you explained it to me earlier off air, I still didn't know what it meant. So I was like, no, no, yeah, yeah, grotto. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, a grotto wasn't the Playboy grotto where the people had sex underneath the, the ground in like the pool area in the I Playboy think, mansion? I think is a grotto like a. Listen, we don't what, know what a grotto a, is. Hold on, hold on. I'm, I'm going to say it's like a Coliseum type situation, a much smaller. A coliseum? No, much, much smaller. In the sense, not a coliseum, <laughs> but like a... A grotto is... Oh, wait, let wait, me... Wait, 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 wait. Hold okay. on. Before you read it, I was going to okay. say it's like a um, like a place for entertainment. So like a small yeah. theater type thing. No. No. <laughs> it's an indoor structure resembling a cave. <laughs> or a coliseum. <laughs> no. It's a small picturesque <laughs> cave. <laughs> How grotto. dumb are we? Uh, I, you know, I do like having you in here right now where it's like huh? I normally can't ever... I have, to, I have to stop the show so I... So it's nice that you can keep talking while I can type something. It's it's called riffing. Riffing. Riff. Riffing. Okay, so. Get out of here. Different era, different little stores. And, and, and on the porch of this little grocery store, Harriet Lowe struck several times with an axe. Once so violently, the axe uh, blade flies off the handle. Uh, somehow she, she manages to stumble to her bedroom and collapse in the bed. And I kept thinking this, like doing this research for this episode, how fucking tough people are. Like, to, can you how, imagine how, how, how tough people were? Okay. Well, how tough people were, but, but, but like just humans in general. Yeah. Where if you, it's just crazy that like, I would think not having struck someone in the face with an ax, that if I violently swung an ax into someone's face, they're not stumbling anywhere. But that is, that is what seems to happen. <laughs> like, that's fucking crazy. Like, I would assume if I got struck with an ax, I'm done. Sayonara. I mean, you would think. You would but, think, but, but, but these but, people but, keep walking off. Is it an adrenaline rush? Like, like you kind of like know, wake up, you see the axe coming, you're like, oh, motherfucker, here it comes. And then it's just like, holy shit. And you just But even if, that's, even if that's true, even, even if it's adrenaline, how crazy is it that an axe doesn't just obliterate you? Maybe it was very dull axes. Maybe there were bad axes back then. Maybe, maybe a modern axe would fucking maybe, do the trick. Maybe they were heavier 
and not as aerodynamic as they are now. We're now like, you, ah. know, you know, now you could probably I get some real whip quality, to it. I would think the quality would be better back then. I think now they would skimp on metal. Now I feel like they would hollow out the axe to save on materials. Yes, mass but. Mass produced. Yes, but. This is quality 20th century axes. Right. About. So really heavy duty. So you probably couldn't get as much weight behind it. Where now I'm saying like if it was a little bit lighter, you could really like throw it down hard. Yeah, but you're weak on your shoulders. I do have bird shoulders. You do have weak shoulders. Bird shoulders and raccoon paws. And raccoon paws. If a normal human without bird shoulders. Without, who wasn't Polish. Who wasn't Polish yes. without raccoon mm-hmm. paws. I see all your jokes swing. coming a mile away. <laughs> you got to get some new shit, man. Ah! Okay, I just think it's amazing that people could survive a heavy, early 20th century axe hit. Yes. Okay, we can agree on that. Yes, moving okay, on. moving on. Moving on. Both victims end up with head injuries, both the people living there, uh, because after after attacking Harriet, the, the attacker moves into her lover, Lewis's room, uh, and attacks him as well. Gashed him in the face and fracturing his skull. The blunt, rusty axe blade, uh, you know— uh, fracturing skull, but not a life-threatening wound, according to the surgeon who treated him. Now, the woman's injury is much more serious. In addition to several gashes on her arms and chest, Harriet had been hit twice in the head. Uh, Her skull had been cracked. The seriousness of her her injuries make the police anxious, and they question her immediately because they're afraid that she's going to die. So they want to get like, who did you see attack you before you die? Which I do get. But unfortunately, they interview her too soon, and she's drugged up on painkillers, and she talks nonsense to them. And she says... Uh, a mulatto wanted to buy some tobacco after the store opened. When I told him we didn't sell tobacco, he attacked me, and that's not true. She, she was found in her nightclothes, not dressed to wait on customers. Her story did not make sense. She would not come out and talk to a man about a tobacco sale in her nightgown. Uh, women didn't do that back then. But the, uh, the officer wrote it all down. He just wants to arrest someone. Well, the, and then based on her nonsense, drug-addled mind description— uh, and little else, the police interview a few local, local mulatto suspects, immediately uh, arrest, almost immediately, Louis Obachon, 41-year-old African-American man who'd been employed in Bessemer's store just a week before the attacks. Now, no evidence existed which would prove him guilty. Uh, Zero. Did, what do you say? Zero. Zero. But, I mean, it is crazy back then. Like, like you would think if, if she knew that he did it specifically, she'd be like, oh, uh, Louis did it. Louis Obachon, not like a mulatto. Right. But the police are so racist, they're like, yeah, this fucking this guy will do it. They, they just want to, like, have the have the uh, media calm down. So they arrest this guy. But so, then, it sounds vaguely familiar. I know. This shit does happen. But then, but then they do release him because the motive doesn't make sense on any level. Like, it's so bad. Even, like, super racist uh, uh, law enforcement officers back in the early 20th century uh, during a super racist era still can't convict a, uh, a mulatto man because it's so nonsensical. Like, if, uh, okay, if he broke in to steal their stuff, why didn't he take anything? This, the, that Whoever did it right. took nothing. Right. So then the police shift focus to their next suspect, Lewis Bessemer, the husband, and, uh, well, supposed husband. Because Harriet told detectives also in her dr- drugged-out rambling that he was German, that he uh, claims he's not. I don't know where he got the money to buy a store, and she says he's a spy. I have a question. Yeah. I don't, like, am I just drunk? But I thought yeah. Harriet was the lover of somebody— Harriet is a lover of this guy, this Louis. But Bessemer. then, why is it her husband? How is he suddenly okay. her husband? Okay, sorry. Like because of my notes, like he, she claimed initially because of uh, for appearances, they both claimed oh, that they were married. Oh yes, but they weren't. They were just fuckers, right? But Oops. after like a week, they figure out that they're not married. Got it. Got but it. Initially, they both lied to the police, and that's why she's saying my husband. Yes, that's why she says. That's why the quote. Das husband Lindsay, Deutsch. Das husband. Lindsay is looking at my notes here. Yes, the quote is my husband is German. He claims he is not, and she does say that because. She, she doesn't is want to be afraid of being judged. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So the police, the police arrest him. They believe her. 
Uh, and they're taking the, the, the possibility of, of German espionage very seriously in 1918. The United States entered, entered the World War I in Europe April 1917. Fear of German saboteurs led to the Espionage Act of 1917. Uh, we talked about last week's Area 51 suck. Steady stream of propaganda encouraging citizens to be on the lookout for enemy agents in 1918. Now, anti-German hysteria soaks the country during the post-war years uh, and the war years. Uh, now, we talked about this the last recording, and uh, and you but, talked about how your family – you have no recollections of your family talking about how hard things were to be German because you're, you're half Polish and half German. Right, right, right. Like Polish, German, Czechoslovakian. And right. Czechoslovakian? No, yeah. But what? Wait a minute. You can't be half and half and then I, something I else. never said I was half and half. You said I was well, half and half. Well, what part are you not half? I don't know. You I, don't I've, fucking know. I've just always it's been— It's all a lie! <laughs> <laughs> I've just always been told— uh, Czech, German, Polish. Okay. But my my dad my dad's mom claimed Czech, like oh, that so she was that she was Polish and Czech. Oh, so I Rad Siminski is Polish Czech, possibly. But you know what? I will say, studying it's that era, very... they all like the territory shifted constantly. Exactly. So to me, based on just your actions, you're mostly Polish because I wear socks with sandals. <laughs> just because your family heritage, like they mm-hmm. seem to be like more Polish recipes and things, and and German. That's not true. Spetzel is totally German. I said Polish and German. And you said you you think that I'm mostly German. I mean, mostly Polish. Oh, okay. I meant to say mostly Polish and German. Okay. All right. So, but but yes. Okay. Getting back to the point. Yeah. No, I don't remember my grandparents telling telling me anything about like oh you know we were really we survived this era where right. germans were really persecuted and yeah, yeah, and the yeah. analogy i made earlier was like it's not like uh my heritage is jewish and we're talking right. about people surviving the holocaust no one talked any to me anything about okay. surviving any sort of persecution right. for being german well 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 at this time i mean i guess like you know 1918 1919 that was like at the height of period well well one of the two heights I mean, World War One and World War Two, you know, raised suspicion. So the police were very concerned about it, and they wondered, like, well, why wasn't he hurt as much as she, she was hurt? And yeah. like, like, was he a spy? I mean, this is a real concern. Um, so they arrest him based on her testimony. She, she, he's let go after two days because there is nothing other than her saying, "I think he's a German spy," uh, that makes him suspicious. And so he gets released. He's free, and then, and then also, uh, the lead investigators get fired. Um, and <laughs> and just a quick note on Polish people. I do think it's weird how often they come up in Time Suck. Like, this is uncomfortable since Lindsay's right here, but it's just like. What? Well, it's just like they're dirty people, you know? What? Like, look, your family seems okay, but it's just, it's like, I don't want to talk to you about this, but it's like it's your nature to be deviant. Like, whenever you're, whenever I can't see you, I assume that you're stealing something, mm-hmm. that you're burning something, mm-hmm. or you're ruining something. Just based on you being part Polish, and a lot of other people think the same thing that I've talked to, and 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 I just like one of the things that alarmed me to your nature is when we were in Yellowstone, you asked me if you if I wanted to come check out a free buffet, and then you led me to the porta potty. I and just thought that you would like to. <laughs> you're dirty, filthy Polish monster. <laughs> I just thought your palate needed some expanding. <laughs> it's not as fun doing Polish jokes when you're right here next to me. Right. Well, because you're ashamed. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed, you guys. Okay, so anyway, back to liar, liar, pants on fire, Harriet. <laughs> now, I, I don't, I don't judge her for being a liar, liar, pants because I mean, she fucking got attacked with an axe. Her brain scrambled. Um, but but now she's falsely accused two different Lewises, uh, and poor Harriet. She was horribly disfigured in this attack. 
She was, uh, uh, you know, apparently, according to contemporary accounts, very attractive before the attack. And then after the attack, she, she can't move uh, one side of her face. Uh, her, her one eye stared out silently. Her other eye twitched uncontrollably. Her head is swathed in bandages. Wounds on her arms and her chest is also bandaged. Yeah, she's a fucking mess. She is a mess. Now, let's, let's, uh, I feel like because of the extra time, I feel a little sober. Uh, correct. So let's get Craig in here with some shots, 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 shots. 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 Okay, shots, Craig, Craig's shots, coming shots. in. Here. And Craig's here. He's bringing Elijah Craig. Who's not a fitting. person. We're not doing shots of people's we're not, blood. We're not drinking Craig. Or eating ears. But now, now you said you wanted a shot too, but are you, are you I don't I'm feel not doing comfortable a shot. with, oh, I thought you did. I don't do shots. Oh, I thought you were going to do some Elijah Craig too. No. So I'm not really doing a that shot. That would just burn. It's Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. It's the drunkest fuck suck. And uh, we'll just take a little hit off the bottle. A, a big hit. A big hit off the bottle. You're a so big we're guy. talking about bandages. I'm a big guy. He's a big guy. He needs just like. I want you guys to know that I basically have Down never it. seen my husband drunk. Ooh. My brother. Finish the finish the bottle. Ginger chase. Okay. Wow. Just uh, just emptied the Elijah Craig. Mm-hmm. And Not, how does, does that make you feel like a man? You know, it more it makes me worried about myself. Like, that, that like, I drink often enough that I that I still feel functional. <laughs> Does it put like a little hair on your chest? I have so much hair on my chest. <laughs> you know that. I know. I don't need more. <laughs> All Show right. us a nipple. Show us a nipple. I, uh, again, I hope this is fun for the listeners. It's fun for us. I know. I, I wonder. It's it's fun for us. You guys it, will have to tell us honestly. Like, please don't ever do that again. Or but you know what? People ask for it. They're fucking. People, the people no. spoke, and we have fucking given it. The to people them. spoke. We, okay. But so this, yeah. So after man, I uh, I'm, I'm a, I haven't drank this much for so okay so so Harriet, okay. she she uh she swathed in bandages. She's messed up. Later that summer, she'd undergo facial surgery, and then die in the hospital a few days uh, later after something something goes wrong in the procedure. In between surgery and dying on September 16, 1918, she changes her story again. Now she says Lewis is the man who beat her, her and and not the mulatto Lewis, the German Lewis, her her husband slash lover, her husband slash lover, her. Guys, the people she told uh, initially she was her husband. Now telling you know the truth that she that he's her lover. You sound so, drunk now. This is getting good. <laughs> All says, right, says he. Peter says he tried to kill her with an axe after a domestic dispute, and she injured him while defending herself. So this is probably not not true. People who knew Harriet said that she was never the same after the initial attack. And she's laughing because I'm probably pronouncing his Harriet. Harriet. Uh, after she returned home to live with Lewis, she's very unstable. She'd throw herself on the ground, pray for hours. She'd babble incoherently. Uh, she'd suffer wild mood swings, uh, be unreasonably confrontational. Her brain was damaged. It's weird because when you say like, yeah. she'd like throw herself on the ground. Right. She babbles incoherently. She's got wild mood swings, yeah. unreasonably confrontational. It's like, if I didn't know better, I think she was describing you. Um, is that how I am? <laughs> you throw yourself on the I ground. I throw myself on the ground. Sometimes. No. I don't throw myself on the ground. Once. When did I throw myself on the ground? I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I do have wild mood swings. So wild. Would you say that it's wild, though? Oh, no, I wouldn't say it was wild. You just, you just have high highs, low lows, but like I think that just comes with being a creative type. And do you think I'm manic depressive? I don't think you're manic depressive. I just think, is there a spectrum for manic depression? I don't know. I just Do you think I'm crazy, yes or no? Yes. For real? A little bit. Why am I crazy? Well, define crazy. Okay. Like, like, what do you mean? Like, 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 I think, you know, like some of the things that we choose to do, like fucking yeah. taking on this podcast, and okay. throwing all the eggs in one basket. That's fucking crazy. That's not smart. That's not logical. It's fucking crazy. But, oh. but it's a good crazy. Okay. But then there's, there's the other crazy that's just like, 
you know, oh, I'm so tired. I can't, I can't do it. Yeah. But then like after four hours of sleep, you're like, oh, no, I fucking, I love time suck. Right. Right. So that's just like moodiness that comes with deprivation. <laughs> if I got enough sleep, do you think I'd be a normal person? Not normal, but, but my kind of normal. Okay. So like, like, like artsy, but not crazy, crazy. Right. Not like possibly like a druggie okay. or like. Well, if I get, well, if I, well, if I get or... too far off the spectrum, you gotta, you gotta have me, you gotta sign me up for some stuff. Well, it's kind of entertaining to watch. <laughs> okay. Anyways. Okay. So Harriet so and Harriet. you have a lot in common. Back to that. <laughs> no, Lewis. Well, okay. Maybe Harriet. Maybe, I, you're right. Okay. So, so Harriet convinces the, uh, the police to follow, uh, her testimony a third time, even the, even though the first two times proven to be nonsense. She's gotten the first Lewis arrested for nonsense. Uh, then she got her, her lover, Lewis, arrested for nonsense. Then she's saying, hey, now he tried to uh, attack me, and he gets arrested a second time. So the third time her testimony has gotten somebody arrested over some bullshit because he serves nine months in prison before uh, bef- uh, before being acquitted on May 1st, 1919, after the jury deliberating for 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Fucking crazy town. That's fucking crazy. Like, I've been on a, I was on a jury here after my whole jury fucking stand-up bit yes. in Coeur d'Alene. It took an hour to convince people that uh, that this dude was obviously a drunk driver. Oh yeah, I forgot about the Coeur d'Alene jury. Yeah, survey. he was obviously a drunk driver, like so obvious. And there was three people on the, on the fucking jury who were like, "No, nah, I don't know," and they were just weird and being dumb. And I'm like, "No, he was clearly drunk, like so drunk, so drunk. He was driving the wrong way. He on was the driving the freeway. wrong way in the freeway." And 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 they had their own hangups, and that took an hour. If it took ten minutes, he's obviously has no evidence against him. So okay. So he, so he doesn't, he's not the guy who did it. Maybe the ax man. Now let's back up a bit. Month and a half after the previous attack, another resident of New Orleans is hacked with an ax on August 10th, 1918. Joseph Romano, 31 years old, lives with his sister and two nieces, Pauline and Mary Bruno, as people do back then. Weird uncle, normal, I guess, to live with your sister and two nieces. Another family, uh, family Italian grocery store. So many grocery stores when, when there wasn't Costco or Super Walmart. Uh, Pauline and Mary sleep in a joining room with their uncle, and on the night of August 10th, 1918, they wake up to hear commotion in the room where their uncle sleeps. They run to the room and see that Joseph has taken two blows to the head with an axe, bleeding heavily. And they see the assailant fleeing the scene, who this time they say is a dark-skinned, heavyset man, wearing a dark suit and slouchy hat. So not the same dude as what as they described in the previous uh, descriptions. Now, uh, which makes me wonder, like, is there a whole city of axe men? Is just one copycat after another? Um, that's something I'll talk about at the end. The ambulance, the ambulance arrives. Joseph actually manages to walk out of the apartment. What the fuck? But he does die two, two days later of severe head trauma. Yeah, I bet. How do you fucking walk out? He's when like, you been, nah, no, no worries, bro. He's just like, taking it to the streets. Taking it to the streets. Just got hit in the head with an axe. Taking it to the streets. That's crazy. I think if I got hit, okay, I don't even know how people, I guess you don't know what you're capable of until it happens. I hope I never find out oh, how many not. how many hits to the head with an axe I can take and still be able to walk to the ambulance. Right. So New Orleans living in constant fear now. After seven months of no leads, no more attacks, the axe man strikes again on the night of March 10th, 1919. This time he attacks Italians, not grocers. This is, uh, okay, this is another weird one. Neighbors hear screams coming from the Cormelia residence where uh, Charles Cormelia Lives with his wife, Rosie, and their infant daughter, Mary, and this on the corner of 2nd Street and Jefferson Avenue. Local grocer, 69-year-old Orlando Giordano. Jordano? Giordano. Orlando Giordano. Oh, yeah, you're probably right. 
rushes across the street <laughs> and into the apartment and sees that that Charles, Rosie, and Mary have all been attacked. Uh, of course, he's a grocer. Just can't get away from grocers in this episode. Rosie stands in the doorway with a serious head wound, blood pouring down her face. I mean, fuck, it is so crazy. That all, so many people are being hit by an axe. She clutches her dead two-year-old daughter. My God. Ugh. Oh, my God. Charles lays on the floor, bleeding from the head. The two are rushed to the charity hospital, both of them suffering from skull fractures. Fuck. The police investigate the scene. As usual, nothing stolen. Bloody axe is found on the back porch. Uh, she regains consciousness. Rosie claims that E. Orlando Giordano, the man who discovered them after the attack, and his 18-year-old son, Frank, responsible for the attacks. E. Orlando, a 69-year-old man, uh, probably in too poor of health and, and at his age to have committed the crimes. Frank, more than six feet tall and weighing over 200 pounds, would have been too large to have fit through the panel in the back door. That bothers me. Mm. He's like, they're like, oh, this guy's too fucking big to get through a small opening. I'm a lot bigger than Frank. I would be a fucking monster in 1918, just in my current size. Correct. That's sad. Well, uh, it, you know, it just, <laughs> you adjust for inflation. <laughs> in addition to these problems with the committing the crimes, her husband and fellow victim disagree with Rosie's accusations. Uh, uh, this is crazy. Rosie and her husband disagree so strongly, he ends up divorcing her after the two men are arrested and charged with the crimes. Um, also, uh, and I said this earlier, is anyone listening as amazed as we are that people can survive such direct shots to the face and head with an axe? Like, I just think about it, like, most of the blows are delivered to the people when they're sleeping. So that's when you can score the cleanest hit. Like, if, if the person you're attacking is literally asleep, you get to decide the angle of attack. You get to step into it. Mm. Perfect form. It, 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 like, like, it's like T-ball. Oh, or, or right. is it like a car accident when you don't mm-hmm. see it coming? The the injuries tend mm. to be less severe because you don't tense oh, up and try the and like don't tense up. Yeah, they don't tense up, and also they don't uh. try to like dodge the axe. So if it just, right? yeah, I mean, yes, it fucking hits you head on. Yeah, it's gonna fucking oh, hurt. God. But it's like, I don't know. Is it- <clears throat> I just think that we meat sacks uh, possess such Im- such impressive biology that, that that on any level we can survive. Someone swinging as hard as they can against us with an axe. Now, now, was this in the first recording or the second recording? We were talking about the aerodynamics of the axe. Uh, I think that was in the first recording. Ah, so I just want to point out that I also think that even though axes. Right. Oh, no, no, no. I can't remember, actually. If it might have been this recording. Yeah, sorry. Uh-huh. We had that recording. But you're right. I think it was this recording. We talked about, like, modern axes. Well, you were talking about like maybe – I think it was the last recording actually, right before it cut out. Yeah. I think we were talking about like how you thought that old axes might have been shittily produced. Well, it, it, they might have been made uh, more sturdy or like right. you know better materials, but now they would be lighter and that would give you a better chance of having a, like a right. harder, faster swing, like getting some zip on that yeah. and really cracking into somebody's skull. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Have we got any like fucking engineers out there, some axe uh, engineers who want to tell us about that? Right. Ah. Uh. Almost a year later, Frank and Orlando uh, are, are going to be released uh, from prison. The only evidence used against them, the testimony of Rosie, proven to be false. Uh, Rosie herself finally admits falsely accusing them. Now, why did she do that? Why? why did she lie? What What the fuck, Rosie? Okay, no, but here's the thing. Before you hate her, listen to this. Before being attacked, Rosie worked a bit as a prostitute. Mm. Times are tough. An officer recognized her as a working girl, and they fucking put some pressure on her. They arrest her. They lean on her to finger Frank and E. Orlando for the crimes so they can get the local media off their back and pretend they're solving the Axe Men killings. Interesting. 
The police are desperate to solve the crime and arrest just fucking anybody. They just want the press to leave them alone. They couldn't figure out who was doing these attacks, uh, and, and they, they just want to, like, look good in the public eye. But he's not the guy. Like, like, like uh, you know, Frank in New Orlando are not the guy. A disturbing letter purported to be written by the axe man is sent to the editor of the New Orleans Times Picayune on March 13th, published on March 14th. This letter sold me on this being an especially interesting episode that I probably ruined by being drunk. But, however, nonetheless, hell, this is how, this is how the letter reads. I love that he starts with a date. He says, hell, March 13, 1919. I, I, I like that he actually says, uh, like, acts like the, the, the place he's writing from is hell. He says, the, whoever wrote this letter says, esteemed mortal of New Orleans, they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me for I am invisible. Even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the axe man. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, be smeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. Jesus. Yeah. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense at the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as not only as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. I don't know who Francis Joseph is. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am. For it were better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the axe man. I don't think there is any need of such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians, think of me as the most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens and the worst, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Eh, a little dramatic. He's very cocky. He's very cocky. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time. <laughs> okay. All right. Parenth- parenthetical earthly time. Okay. On next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I fucking love this. <laughs> he then says, I am very fond of jazz music. And I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is, and that, is that some of your people who do not jazz it out. <laughs> Quote, unquote, jazz it out. Jazz it out, man. Jazz it out. On that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, we'll get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, all right, all right, nerd, and, and it is about time I leave your earthly home, I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed in fact or realm of fancy. The Axe Man. I love, I love it, and he does get the people to play this jazz. The following Tuesday, March 18th to the 19th that night, was said to be a boisterous evening, even by New Orleans standards. Thousands of homes blasted jazz music loud enough to be heard by any passing murderers. Those who didn't own uh, home stereos stuffed themselves into clubs and lounges to help block parties. A morbid piece of music 
uh, of sheet music, the mysterious Axman's Jazz was circulated. The cover art depicting a family fanatically playing a piano while on the lookout for an intruder. Whether the threat was credible or not, no one died of Axman's at night. That is pretty funny to me that he pulled that off. Yeah. I mean, I bet that wasn't even the real Axman. It was just some jazz aficionado who was like, watch this. Now, I love Lindsay has not looked into any of my research. I do it like solo on this stuff. That's going to come up later. (gasps) Your gut instinct is good. I am so smart. It is good. It is good. I just think it is so ridiculous. We're like, (laughs) like, it just makes me wonder. I I just keep thinking about like Coeur d'Alene. Like if somehow you could, you could pull off a letter to the press and you're like, all right, fucking Wednesday, September 14th. And you know, like whatever, just be like banjo solos. (laughs) Between 9 p.m. and 3 a.m. or everybody fucking gets it. And then just like all these like scared people. It would be better if it was like everybody plays Michael motherfucking McDonald. Yeah. Or else they get the fucking. Yeah, I'm going to be there. Oh, 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 yeah, I'm gonna be there. Oh, 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 you like that? But better. But better? Yeah. Taking it to those streets, taking it to the streets, taking it to those streets, taking it to the streets. I got Penny barking. Yeah, well. She got excited about that. She really liked it. I'm on the fence. Well, whether the threat was credible or not. <laughs> I hear a lot of yipping out there. Yip, yip, yip. No one died of accidents that night. Like, uh, uh, yeah, how nuts is that? Like, uh, and, and we have no way to know if it was really someone who committed one or some of the all of the attacks. You know, we described maybe it's a prankster. Someone did send that letter. We are gonna have a theory of who probably did it later. But, um, but yeah, like whoever whoever the axe murderer was, you can bet their ass they walked around that night or the town that night, grinning from ear to ear. Okay, so so August tenth. 1919, uh, the axe man, that's when he swings again. He attacks Stephen Boca in his bedroom. Steve was a Filipino yo-yo salesman whose family had moved to New Orleans two decades earlier to build a local water park. Fascinating. Mm-hmm, that's nonsense. Steve was, of course, another <laughs> Italian grocer. Boca awoke during the night to find a figure looming above his bed. In the darkness, quickly passes out uh, because he's hit in the face uh, upon regaining consciousness Boca runs to the street to investigate the intrusion finds that his head had been cracked open the grocer runs to the home of his neighbor Frank Ganusa uh, then loses consciousness again and collapses nothing had been taken from his home a uh, panel in the back door of the home had been chiseled away once again the MO of the axe man uh, Boca recovers from his injuries but can't remember the details of the trauma and then on the night of September 13th 1919 the axe man strikes yet again not enough fucking jazz going around too quiet. Too quiet. This time, Sarah Lawman's attacked. Neighbors came. If only they could have played their fucking jazz or ban- maybe banjo music, you know, with passion. If I if if I was, you know, someone was like, hey, man, you got to play your fucking banjo with your heart out, I would sell it. You'd sell it? But, like just but all no, night long. But no one said that that was the night. That's true. Okay, that that night came and I went. just wanted an excuse. I was just kind of into kind of doing my air banjo. Can you do I, it again? I, I tried to shoehorn an air banjo solo into the narrative. Really? Oh. Like, so I just picture myself. Beautiful. Oh, I just picture myself being so into my banjo solo. Like, and just so passionate that even if people hate the way it sounds and it sounds like fucking nails on a truck. 
Like it sounded that, really that bad. That wasn't a good one. Your very first one was actually was it good? I was like, oh, not bad. Sounds like you a did. Show. You thought yeah. it sounded good? Yeah. That that's what that goes around here. Well, the last part, not so much. Okay, the high part, not so much. Yep, knock it off. Knock it off. But I just feel like my passion would translate into entertainment. Agreed. And people are like, you know what? We can't kill anybody tonight. Look how fucking much fun he's having playing that banjo. Let's let's get back to Sarah Lawman. You're right. No one cares about your fucking banjo. I've lost I've lost the entire. What if this this cost us the entire Time Suck audience? What if every review is like, like every fuck. review is like, shut the fuck up about your banjo. Probably. We're so sick of it. We're so fucking sick of the banjo. Like, you know, like, what if that's how mad they got? Well, I don't know what's happening right now. On the night of September 13th. How how drunk are you? I've had so much to drink. But but are you drunk? I am pretty drunk. But But, but you're pulling it together quite well. I have to say, like, the slurring, the mush mouth. Which I don't think plays well for me. I think I drink too much. If I've had so much to drink. And I'm like, no, I'm good. And I was thinking earlier, I was like, man, if he drank this much and then had to get on stage, like he's really good at just fucking pulling it together. I feel like I've, I've drunk often for a long time. Listen, kids, if you're listening to the show, I'm not a role model. Am I? No. No. Kind of I am in a way, but not in a drinking way. No. But I don't drink too much. I like how you've gotten very defensive. Okay. I like how, yeah, I like how weird I made the show out of him for no reason. I'm like, listen, I don't beat my kids. <laughs> I don't yell I, at them. I love my kids. I love my kids. Okay. We're going to refocus, you guys. I said lawman. Let's go, man. If you're a first Ugh. listener, holy shit, this is I'm the so worst sorry. for you. I'm, I'm so, so sorry. sorry for you. I'm usually not even here. Lindsay's not even here usually. Oh, my God. On the night of September 13th, 1919, the Axeman strikes again. This time, Sarah Lawman is attacked. Neighbors come to check on the young woman who had lived alone, broke into the home, when she didn't answer, they discovered the 19-year-old unconscious on her bed, suffering from a severe head injury and missing several teeth. God damn it. But I'm sorry. Can we just like go back yeah. a second? Why? What led them to break into her house? It's like all of a sudden they just were like, oh, let's check on her. Is that uh, like a thing? Well, I, I, something went on. Something went on that I cut out for editing purposes. Oh. That, that alerted people that like something wasn't normal in her routine. Got it. Okay. So they break in. Got it. Got it. She's, she's, she's missing several teeth. Uh, the intruder had entered through the apartment, uh, her apartment through an open window, attacked her with, you know, an axe. Of course. Bloody axe discovered on the front lawn of the building, which is one of his, you know, kind of like trademarks. He would like, you know, pick an axe, you know, where he, where, where he attacks somebody and then leave it at the, at the crime scene. Uh, her, she recovered from her, from her injuries, but she couldn't recall any details from the attack. So they didn't know who, who was doing this. And, but again, like how resilient are humans? Like <laughs> she gets hit in the fucking face. With the axe. Sarah's fucking awesome. Sarah, Sarah does not fuck around. Can you imagine if Sarah was your grandma? You're like, like, what's uh, your grandma seems kind of like serious. Like, why do you think she's so serious? Well, when she was young, she got fucking hit in the face with an axe. She got fucking axed. She got axed. Oh, she got fired from her job? No, she literally. No, she got fucking axed. Axed. In the face. And it knocked a lot of her teeth out. And that's why she's more strict about chores now. So shut the fuck up about my grandma. Shut the fuck up. So shut the fuck up about my grandma. Things are getting so weird now. When you yell at hearts, mate, you're so... Okay, I'll, stop, I'll, I'll try Can and I work on... Can I turn down the volume? Am I yelling too hard? Okay. So, Oof. okay. A uh, little month, a uh, little over a month uh, later, a few days after, uh, before Halloween, <laughs> a few days before Halloween, not after and before, another Italian grocer is brutally attacked. Esther Pepitone. Eddie Pepitone's mom. I know! That cracked me up! That's what I thought! I love... Oh, I love you so much right now. 
Eddie Pepitone. Oh, God, they've come with oh, more booze. more drinks. More drinks, 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 more drinks. drinks, drinks. Esther Pepitone sounds like Eddie Pepitone, who's one of my favorite comics on the planet. Oh, that feels great, Craig. Oh, Dan's getting a massage now. I'll you guys off. Five bucks. I have 50 cents. Craig from 10 over 6 is giving me a massage right now. This is so nice. And Penny's here, too. And Penny's here. All the dogs are in. Oh, man. Esther Pepitone. Uh, if you guys haven't checked out uh, Eddie Pepitone, so funny. He's so funny. He's and one I don't of the most underrated most comics. comics in yeah, the world. So so oh, I love him. I love you, Eddie Pepitone. Okay, her husband Mike. Let's, let's send him this episode. Let's send him this episode. <laughs> worked all day and uh, all day and all night. And uh, Saturday, October twenty fifth. Sunday, October twenty seventh. That doesn't make any sense. What? Saturday, October 25th, Sunday, October 26th. Wait, hold on. It says, Esther Pepitone, her husband Mike, yeah. had worked all day and long into the night yeah. on both Saturday yeah. the 25th and Sunday the 26th. Which, 27th is what I wrote. But you meant 26th. I was trying to save you right Thanks, there. Thanks, Craig. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. You uh, rock, Craig. Okay, so they were working a long weekend when the Cells Floto Circus was in town. There was a small fortune to be made selling soft drinks to the crowds of delighted children and adults who walked past the Pepitone's grocery at the corner of Aloha and Scott in Mid-City to the circus a block away. Sunday night, it wasn't until midnight that the exhausted Mrs. Pepitone was able to fall asleep next to her husband Mike in the bedroom behind the store. She wakes up to a fucking nightmare. From a distance, she heard somebody scream for help. Uh, she wakes up to the sound of her husband screaming, Oh, Lord, sits up in bed, sees the shapes of two men slipping out to the bedroom into her children's room next door. <gasps> Can you imagine? No, can you I imagine? Fuck. Can you imagine if someone came in and attacked me with the axe? Like an axe. Uh, I was panicked because he was making it into the kids' room. Yeah. I'm not worried about you. I'm worried about the fucking kids. I, I love that. She looked over to see her husband lying to, uh, next to her, covered in blood, moaning, panicked. She shakes him. Mike, Mike, what has happened? Or uh, what happened? Mike groans in reply on the verge of hysteria. She leapt out of bed, rushed in, out of the bedroom, shouting for help. Her oldest child, 11-year-old Rosie, runs outside to summon a neighbor. Is that another Rosie? That's her uh, second Rosie. It's another Rosie. Very yeah. confusing. I know. Around 1.20 a.m. on October 27th, the uh, Deputy Sheriff Ben... Corcoran. Thank you. Corcoran? Corcoran. Ben Corcoran. C. Ben Corcoran. Ben Corcoran was walking down Scott Street on his way home when Rosie runs into the street hollering for help. My father is full of blood, she cries. Corcoran follows Rosie back into the house where he meets Mike's terrified and bewildered wife, Mr. Corcoran, she says... It looks like the axe man who's here and murdered Mike. She points toward the bedroom. Corcoran enters to see Mike lying unconscious on the bed to wash his own blood. The bedroom is speckled in crimson, blood splashed eight or ten feet high. Mike has been viciously pummeled, his skull fractured in several places, his face beaten into an unrecognizable... I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine. On a chair near the bed lay the bloody weapon, a 14-inch iron bar. Fuck! With, an, with a heavy three-inch iron nut on the end. God! Mrs. Pepitone tells her story to the investigating officers and gives a description of the attackers, a tall, thin man and a shorter, stockier one. She'd only gotten a glimpse of them as they, they escaped through the children room in the backyard. Two guys this time. Two guys. Now, I would like yeah. to connect the dots here. Yes. Shorter, stockier guy. Is he African-American? Because right. there was a, a short, plump right. African-American guy earlier. And the tall, white guy. So, is are, they, are they working together? Mulatto. Right. You don't know. I mean, I mean, I mean, it is weird that all of a sudden she 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 fingers two dudes. Every other crime, one dude. Maybe there was always two, but maybe. like maybe like one was the lookout. Yeah, because most of the time people didn't see. Could have been two guys the whole time. Absolutely more brazen. Mike had been discovered wearing trousers. Uh, Mrs. Pepitone said that she had gone to bed in only his underwear. Detectives theorize he heard the sound of the break in. 
preparing to investigate. So he puts out his underwear, puts his cock and balls into his underwear. He puts his dick and hairy balls into maybe a boxer situation of some sort. He puts, he has, initially he has his hairy penis and hairy testicles flopping around. Absolutely. Then he puts clothing over them. That's good of him to put it away. Mm-hmm. And then he goes to try and find out what's going on, and then he gets attacked. While policemen in the mid-city neighborhood comb over the Pepitone residence and grocery doctors at charity try to save Mike's life, but 35-year-old grocer uh, Mike is, is dead by 3.15 a.m. He bled to death from multiple wounds on both, si- both sides of his head. Ugh. So was it like a, a double whammy? Like, no, he got hit, no, no, he got hit several times. But, but like, were they both doing it, I mean? Oh, that's true. There's two dudes, maybe. He bleeds to death from multiple wounds. Oh, man, any of, the, any of the blows could have killed him. Whoever attacked Mike Pepitone or, you know, if it's multiple people, they meant to kill him. While some attribute the attack to the Axeman, authorities at the time considered a retribution killing. Retribution. From, that's, what I, that's what I thought I said. It well, was a said, retri- retribution killing. You said, a, you said retribution. Retribution killing. Retribution. Retribution killing from a previous murder, possibly involving Mike's father, Peter. Peter, Peter. Pumpkin eater. Pumpkin eater. Obviously, there are some uh, modus operandi differences, like the iron bars of the axe. Uh, some records of the axe man of New Orleans stopped there. Others, however, think the killer moved on to some other towns. Like uh, police records and newspaper accounts show that he struck elsewhere, or someone struck elsewhere in Louisiana, killing Joseph Spiro and his daughter 200 miles northwest of New Orleans in Alexandria, December 2020. 1920. December 2020? You mean in a time that hasn't happened yet? <laughs> December 1920. And then Gio- welcome, welcome to this predictive episode of Time Stop. Oh, God. And then Giovanni Orlando, 240 miles west of New Orleans in DeRitter, January 1921. Finally, Frank Scalisi. Thank you. 205 miles west of New Orleans in Lake Charles in April 2021. So now his modus operandi, the same in all these attacks. He breaks into an Italian grocery store, middle of the night, tax a grocer. Tax a family with an axe. Then the axe man disappears from history. Also, this is time for the timeline to disappear. Let's get out of here. <laughs> Let's. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. It's fun for me to have you here, Lizzie. I like this. You enjoy this? I do. Well... We'll see what our fans think. Maybe I'll pop in more often. Or, or they're going to be like, hate it. fuck her. People will be like, get the, get the fuck out of here. This episode went on forever because she kept interrupting. Uh, but I feel like, I would just like to say this. You're the eyes into the show. There's that. But oh. also, I feel like, uh, you know, sometimes I listen to you recording something. And I'm like, but wait, what about this? Oh, right. And I feel like our fans might be also thinking that. So it's nice to be here and actually be able to interject and get yep. you to give some clarification. Which is what I said. That's what means the eyes in. That's it. That's a Hollywood term. <laughs> Are you so fancy? I'm so fancy. Eyes in. Dan is drunk. Eyes in. Okay. So the this hell? is a man's world. This is a man's world. Anytime you scream, I just immediately like. Jam. <laughs> All I hear not is in, that. Not in. Not in. <laughs> not, not, not in. Papa's got a brand new bag. Uh, that that is <laughs> no, not no, not no, not. Who? That's James Brown. Is that his name? Oh my god. That's a that's a guy mm-hmm. who's a funk master and, and a fucking horrible human being that we talked about in the Secret Suck. And his words are in my head right now. But but who? The <laughs> Let's focus. Who the hell 
was the Axeman of New Orleans. We're all drunk right now. Was it one dude? Mr. Pepitone saw two men or Mrs. Pepitone. You know, and the size. Mr. Pepitone didn't see shit. He's dead. Eddie Pepitone didn't see. Okay, that's right. He got killed. Mrs. Pepitone saw two men. The size, look, and age of the suspects seemed to vary from time to time. Based on the investigations of various accident experts, it's highly, highly unlikely that all of these crimes were committed by one person. Some were very likely committed by members of some sort of organized crime, the Black Hands, Mafia stuff. At least one probably committed by Chica Tilo. What is big deal? How I kill before born? You're drunk. You're drunk, Cummins. Your dick soft as shameful as Chica Tilo's now master sucker. I don't need to even rasp you now. I blow on you and you fall over like weak, spoiled, capitalist child. They go now. It makes less sense than normal for Chikatilo to be here now. But seriously, pulling back from Chikatilo. <laughs> I love how we can hear Craig and yeah. TJ and Joe laughing Loud. in another room. But seriously, some of the killings. You, you, you are actually funny. I'm. Oh, I, <laughs> I love that like, it took me to get drunk after us being together for so many years. you like, oh, okay, I get it now. This is why people like him. <laughs> I found him weird and just uh, uh, annoying for so many years. But now I get it. Okay. But seriously, some of the killings, the ones between May of 1918 and October of 1919, do seem to be likely the work of one man. Only one su- suspect was ever circulated by amateur sleuths in the preceding decades, but it's likely he became associated with the case due to his death at the hand of Pepitone's widow, mm. Esther. I know, I keep thinking of Eddie Pepitone. She had remarried... And shot a man named Doc Mumphrey after believing he had something to do with her second husband's disappearance disappearance in L.A., Los Angeles. Badass. Mm-hmm. Owing to several aliases this Doc Mumphrey had used, Leon Manfrey, Frank Mumphrey, his identity became intertwined with that of a Joe Mumphrey who was in and out of prison in New Orleans around the time of the second series of killings. Writers on the Axeman case have frequently asserted that the, the Joseph Mumphrey— who was involved in the Mike Pepitone murder, had several terms in prison, and that his intervening spells, intervening, excuse me, spells of freedom, did in fact coincide uncannily with the Axeman murders. Uncannily? I, uncannily. I feel like I'm making some important points now that I'm not selling because I'm drunk. But if anyone did all of these murders, if there was one person who did the early murders and the late murders, probably Joseph Mumphrey. I, I buy it. But 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 uh, uh, with no fingerprints, reliable eyewitness identification, plausible suspects, authorities never solved the Axeman murders. So what happened to him? Maybe it was the man Esther killed. Maybe it's this Joseph Mumphrey. Maybe he died in you know some random unsatisfying way. Same thing could have happened to the Zodiac killer. I think about that all the time, or or the Black Dolly murder. Like we we want resolution. Right? It's human nature. We want justice for certain situations. We want a satisfying ending to the tale. But that is not how life always works. Right? Like, correct. You know, like, like, okay. I played, here's a story you've never heard, I don't think, Lindsay. I played with a Scott, uh, a kid named Scott. One summer in Riggins, Idaho. His grandma was a friend of my grandma's, Grandma Betty's. Uh, God, uh, I can't remember her name right now. Doesn't um, matter. Doesn't matter. His parents lived in McCall. Uh, McCall. And sometimes when he would visit his grandma, uh, he and I would pal around catching snakes, putting grasshoppers in jars to use as bait to catch trout out of the river. And those are not made up examples. I, that's what we did. And then he stopped coming by, and I kind of forgot about him. I kind of forgot about Scott. And then when he and I were both in our late 20s, my grandma Betty asked me if I remembered him. Jerlene is his grandma's name. Not that it matters, but it matters to me. Thank you, Jerlene. Thank you, Jerlene. I said I did remember him, and she, my grandma Betty told me that Scott had died. 
And she told me that Scott was fishing somewhere near Rapid River, uh, near where it dumps into the Little Salmon River a few miles south of Riggins, Idaho. He's fishing for salmon. At some point when he's fishing, maybe when a salmon bites and he jerks his pole to set the hook, uh, maybe when he, when he hits a snag, tries to get it loose, maybe he just misjudged you know, his footing for whatever reason. He slips on a rock on the bank of the river, falls back, hits his head on another rock, and the current pulls him out of the river and he drowns and he dies. That's awful. It is awful. Uh, you know, our second fishing, uh, you know, one second, I'm sorry, he's fishing on the bank of the river, enjoying the quiet and the fresh air and the prime of his life. And a few minutes later, he's literally dead in the water. So th- there is a chance that the ax man did all the shit mm-hmm. and then just had a random death that is satisfying to no one and, and just disappears from history. And that, that possibly unsatisfying conclusion is what takes us out of this time suck timeline. Didn't we already do this? Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. Am I drunk or did you play that outro twice? Yeah, you just played that outro again. We already did it. Oh, whoops. I really am drunk. I'm doing weird claps. Okay. Supposed, I wish somebody okay, could see that. I'll go to the bathroom and then, and then I'll come back and I'll do it to the internet. Oh, okay. I, I am the editor of today. <laughs> okay. Oh, Lord. Idiots of the internet. Hey, guys. Full disclosure. So drunk? Pretty drunk. Yeah, he almost fell over, which was pretty exciting for me. That's that, That's... I know that I'm pretty drunk when I go to the bathroom and I'm like trying to just walk into a bathroom like a person does. <laughs> and I hit a wall and I'm like, oh, you're not supposed to bounce off walls. And I have to like kind of like crawl around the wall. Yeah. I do know. I know exactly yeah. what you mean, man. Okay. All right. So for today, we have the door open. So you might hear, you might hear, I know I've already talked about it. Jo- fucking Joe, fucking Joseph. What? What's the matter? He yells stuff in the background. Yeah, but normally Joseph we, Paisley. Normally we have the door closed to the studio, right. and you can't really hear that peripheral noise. So, yeah, but we're leaving it open because the dogs are being dickheads, and it's hot. And it's hot now. They're being now they're kind of quieting and laying down, but in a way they're being dickheads. Let, let's talk about the idiots in the okay. internet. So okay, okay. Hey guys. Hey guys. We're not going to YouTube. There's not really good comments about the Axeman on YouTube. I, I looked at a bunch. The only the only video I could find about the Axeman on YouTube that had a ton of views was on BuzzFeed. And the commenters tend to talk about the host, not the subject matter. So uh, I switched back to Amazon. Now, one of the main sources I leaned on today, as I said earlier, author, author Miriam C. Davis, a book called Axeman in New Orleans, The True Story. I got the Kindle edition, four and a half star rating. But Boyd Mello, he, <laughs> he gives it three stars. And he says, quote, disappointed and then in the subject line uh he says in his review soilers <laughs> like do they <laughs> shit the bed <laughs> he, has a, he has an asterisk and then he says soilers well written and easy to follow but i was hoping the mystery would be solved <laughs> 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 it felt like an investment into a black hole uh it's a true crime book you dumb shit <laughs> the crime was the crime wasn't solved. 
Oh, the book isn't going to solve a crime that the real detective didn't solve? Ah, oh, I love that he says Soilers. <laughs> <laughs> it's Spoilers, or in this case, Spoiler. Since, you know, you don't want to be spoiling the one thing. Or maybe not a spoiler at all, since most people probably read it are familiar with the crime itself level. I just love people. Soilers! Don't like that the crime wasn't solved. <laughs> Three out of five. Uh, the, the fucking truth. Uh, like, what did you want from the review? Like, hey, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer did it. Case closed. Like, what are you hoping to get out of this book? Okay. So then I go to Goodreads because Amazon didn't have enough reviews to have enough wackadoodles. Goodreads, I don't ever go to Goodreads when I'm looking for a book, but it has a lot of reviews. People are very active on it. After Boyd's review on Amazon, I move over to Goodreads. The same book has so many more reviews. One is Kim, who commits a, 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 a book, re- book review pet peeve of mine. She posts, quote, Rel- well-researched and well-written book about a serial killer in New Orleans in the early 1900s. That's what she says. Well-researched, well-written. Three out of five stars. I just burped right into the microphone like an animal. <laughs> Like a like a savage. Normally, when sober, I pull off the mic, and I loved it. Like I knew I was gonna burp, and the burp came, and I was like, I don't fucking even care. Oh no, you're that guy. I am that guy. Okay, <sighs> exactly. I, I am. I, I am like Kim, but but like like it, you love the research and you love the writing, but <laughs> but what did she say afterwards? Nothing. Nothing. It, it wasn't says, like she it says, wasn't like everything's positive. She says love the writing, love the love love the. She's uh, a tough critic. She's, she's an asshole. Or she's honest. She's like, love it. She loves everything. She loves it, but it could have been better. Well, then she needs to fucking write that shit out. She says, I love, I love everything about it. Like, she says, well researched, well written book about a serial killer in, the, in, in New Orleans in the early 1900s. And then that's all she says. There's an, okay. And then she goes three out of five stars. Fucking make an argument for your case, Kim, you dick. Yeah. <gasps> Ah, four, four out of five stars at least. Hmm. Right? Maybe. Okay. I didn't read the book. I don't know. But okay, but if you did read the book and you're going to give it three, then say why you give it three. That's just a weird thing where you're like, oh man, this is so great. I love everything about it. Three out of five stars. Well, then you didn't love everything about it. You had two out of five stars worth of problems about the book and you weren't a fucking human enough to comment on it. Is this like a personal tirade about like your reviews? Yes. You're, you're feeling. I am feeling because I, I am someone who gets reviewed and it's like, and truly, I have less ego than most of my peers. You admit that. Yeah, you do. You do not have any ego. Where I, you're like, okay, no, I get what they're saying. Right, I understand I'm where very, they're coming I'm from. I'm very practical. Yeah. I, I, I really, truly, truly, truly don't mind if someone gives me a one out of five star review, but make an argument for your case. If you're like, I don't like this fucking asshole. He's, he, he's foul language. Check. Yes. He's negative. Yes. He's hateful, yes. And then, like, that's not the comedy I care for. One out of five. I'm like, all right, I get it. But if you're like, oh, man, this guy was amazing. Two out of five. Fuck you, you moron. Make an argument for your case. But, but maybe they think you're going to read it and they don't want to hurt your feelings. Well, then they shouldn't give two out of five stars. The word no. about feelings. No, no, I'm just saying. Okay, one more. There's not a lot out there about this subject, sadly. Uh, uh, but Lizzie Lou on Goodreads gives two out of five stars. And she says, <laughs> not, quote, not what I was expecting or looking to read. This book is about a fascinating story, but I but was poorly told. 
I was looking for more on the overall story of the serial killer and instead got way too many details on one particular case of men falsely accused. The author rambled and wandered from tangent to tangent. You fucking idiot. Lizzie Lou. Now what you're looking to read? Did someone force you to read this? That that kills me. This was not what I was looking to read. But, well, then but fucking read something else. But haven't you ever started a book and been like, ah, this isn't what I thought it was going to be, but I'm going to keep going because I'm going to see if no. it gets better, it gets better. No, you just give up. No, I, 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 I look into the synopsis before I ever get a book. But, but that's like saying you've never read a bad book. Uh, I read bad books in college because I was forced to read bad books, but like, like now, no, I don't read a bad okay, book. I, I bought a book. I cannot remember the name of it for the life of me. Something about like City on Fire or something. I was like, won all these awards. I was like, right. okay, this sounds great. Four chapters in, I was like, fuck, this is awful. And I tried going back and I tried going back and okay. I tried going back. Maybe it's just a bad book, but she just made it to the end. But you know, you know why what? I'm defending an idiot of the internet is beyond me. You know what though? It's good. It's good because I, I should be challenged. I mean, for yes, me, you should. you're ma- a power hungry. <laughs> I'm power hungry. Maybe I'm too <laughs> sensitive because, I, okay, okay. But here, here's my you personal. Are sens- you are sensitive. Uh, am I? Sometimes. Okay. Well, because because in your attempt to be pragmatic right. and realistic that not everyone's going to love you, that opens you up to subjective uh, criticism. And that, okay. can, that can hurt because it's, it's personal. It is personal, but you're already putting out there. I mean, I mean, it does remind me of like, uh, okay, 2018. Comedy clubs sometimes will give away discounted tickets or free tickets to people who, you know, uh, are, are, are on a mailing list. Right, like, like, just like when you like go uh, today. I bought something at Party City. I bought balloons, and they're like, "Can we get your email address?" Right. Like, no, I'm good. Right, you. Everybody gets put on a mailing list right. every time they buy something. And, okay, and then people will come to my show because they got free tickets as as, as part of some kind of like uh, prize or some kind of random giveaway. Because they also saw somebody else. They were also there for like Jeff Dunham five yeah. years ago. They put their name on a list, and they're like, "Oh, well, I liked Jeff Dunham. I will right. like Dan Cummins." And Not then, true. Right. And then someone would give them free tickets, and I'm like, okay, cool. I'm going to dedicate my Friday night to Dan Cummins. And then they don't research who the fuck I am. Like, like, like there is shit out there I, about me. Yeah. Right? And so they come expecting to uh, experience, like, like, some kind of, like, uh, clean Jeff, <laughs> Jeff Dunham, you know, Fox really type of humor, which, which, which I'm not shitting on. I'm really not. That humor is fine. Truly. It's just but, not who you are. It's not, it's not my humor. And so— but then the comedy club will have like some kind of like handout, like saying like, "Hey, rate the show," and they give it like two out of five stars. And it's like you should give yourself two out of five stars. <laughs> like you're too lazy to look into the entertainment you you went out to see, and then you didn't get what you were hoping for. Okay, well, yeah, that's how that works. Then you know, like you need to pick, you know, like like do your research. Like if you didn't want uh, a story that didn't have a uh, a strong resolution. Don't look into the axe man of New All Orleans. Right. All right, I'm with you. Yeah, yeah. So, like, you know, you want you want a true crime store with a nice little wrap, little little bow. Everything wraps up perfectly. Then look look elsewhere. Uh, pick a book about a killer they caught, or continue to be a frustrated member of the idiots of the internet. And I'm supposed to hit a button now. Hit the outro. Damn it! Now. Fucking hit a button. Hit a button. Hit a button. Idiots of the internet. Okay, guys, I, I'm not hitting. I, I'm not hitting the right amount of buttons. I want you to drink some water. No. Listen, you've got a flight tomorrow. Yeah, but later. Not that late. Kind of. The flight's at ten. I'll I'll live. You're gonna have to leave the house at 
7.30. But look, listen to me. I'm at the point where I love it. Turbo dog. You love being drunk? Yes. It's been so long. This is a bit of turbo dog, and I don't even care anymore. Well, listen, you guys. Let's talk about what turbo dog is. Can I talk about cocaine? Wait, let me talk about turbo dog, and then you can talk about all the coke you want. Yes. Turbo dog is in the Abita family, and Abita Mm. Purple Haze was the original Abita beer, Mm. and it's from New Orleans. I love it. I'm drinking New Orleans beer because I love New Orleans. I hope this is entertaining. Probably not. Probably not. Sorry, guys. We we can edit this out later. So this is this is all there is to today's tale. Almost we have the, we have the new uh, you know uh, uh, top five takeaway info. Of course, that'll be the number five. Uh, they never found the axe man. Man, wait, isn't there a thing? Top five takeaways. Oh, that's coming, and then and then top five is new info. So that's that's new info. Is talking about, um, but you know, with the axe man, they never did find him. Like, uh, still, this suck was worth sucking to me. Like, I love an excuse to spend a little time in New Orleans. And, and, and what if it, you know, was one dude who did most of these killings? And, and what if he then got away? Sometimes I, I like an open-ended story because it allows your imagination to wander all over the place. I mean, what Choose he, your own adventure. Choose your own adventure. What if he just got tired of bashing people's heads in with an axe? You know, we all go through phases. <laughs> I like one, how you spelled phases. I, I know. I, I don't spell very good. People don't know that. <laughs> you guys, you guys, he spelled uh, phases F A Z E S as opposed to I know P H A S S E S. Fuck. That is, this is great. I make fun of myself and my stand up for not being a good speller, but you guys don't get <laughs> Red Shame Line. Ah! Okay. At one time when I was in college, you know, I had a hoop earring in each of my ears. And that was important to my identity. And then after a few years, I didn't give a shit about earrings. Playing basketball is important to me for years. Could care less now. No interest at all. Maybe the axe man met somebody who gave his life type of meaning it didn't have before. Maybe he fell in love. Maybe he started a family. Maybe he became a good father. Lived to regret the choices his younger self made. Doubtful. You know, probably. Yeah, right. You know what? You know what? You don't ask people in the head for a few years and then become a thoughtful, introspective father. Now, I, I hope the fucker slipped while cutting some firewood. Axed himself right in the fucking face. Blood out, laying there thinking, ain't this a bitch? And now it is time for top five takeaways. Find the button. I can't find the button. There's so many stupid fucking buttons. Oh, there we go. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Okay. Hey, guys. Number one. The axe murders of New Orleans may have begun in early as 1910. First weapon not being an axe, but a meat cleaver. Number two, axe man. His M.O. was breaking into the home of a victim or victims through the back door, leaving a chisel used to break into the house using an axe or hatchet. The killer found inside the house and then leaving the murder weapon behind. And the victim or victims was typically an Italian grocer. Number three, Italian immigrants, particularly Sicilians, were not well-liked in New Orleans in the early 20th century because they were content laboring away in the field for existing landowners, and they didn't subscribe to an established racist doctrine. Basically, it sounds like the existing residents of New Orleans were threatened by the immigrants because immigrants were actually better people than they were. I get it, man. Sometimes we feel threatened by people who remind us that maybe we aren't living the life we should be living. Number four, many Axeman experts believe the first Axeman attack was May 23rd, 1918. The last one was October 27th, 1919. Eight attacks in less than a year and a half. And then he just vanished. As suddenly as he, as he appeared. And number five, new info. 
The author of the primary source for today's suck, Miriam Davis, thinks she knows who wrote the famous Axeman letter to the, new, to the newspaper in 1910. This is going back to what you said. <gasps> yes, I said this. I'm so I know you did. A long time smart. ago you said this. New Orleans, Louisiana ragtime musician Joseph John DeVia wrote a song that came out shortly before the letter called The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz, Don't Scare Me Papa. Uh, and she suspects it was a promotional prank. DeVia actually paid a ragtime pianist to play his composition continuously in a wagon being pulled up and down Canal Street the night the Axeman commanded the city to play jazz. Fascinating. Right? And I listened to it, and it sucks. <laughs> it's ragtime, and it sucks. But listening to that on YouTube did lead me to a song called The Axeman's Jazz about the night the Axeman took over New Orleans by the band called Flatliners. Never heard nice. of them. But this song is pretty cool. Check it out. Please don't go, cause we're playing the X-Men's Jazz. Please stay and listen to the sound of the wailing brass. Yeah! Draw the curtains out of sight. Don't step outside and you will look through the night. Please don't go, cause we're playing the X-Men's Jazz. Where's this album at? Why don't we have that on vinyl? Final. That's fantastic. You don't like it? Exceptional. Exceptional. That was sarcastic, and that's enough for today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Ah shit! We did it, time suckers. The end of the first era of time suck. The first hundred episodes, actually, uh, kind of the bonus episodes. 125 subjects sucked. Less than two years. Uh, what weird places? Are we going to head into for the second 100 episodes? Uh, you know, what, what what strange side projects are going to pop up between now and then? Hopefully, hopefully, you know, you guys support us on Patreon, man. Hopefully it's going to lead to uh, several. You know, the, I, I know uh, many of you were, were upset about the bonus sucks, but the time saved by not doing the crazy amount of research for those extra episodes will lead to extra content. It will. Yeah, I want to do it. Uh, we're, Lindsay and I are going to, uh, you know, try a... Try a a podcast. Joe and I are going to try a podcast, and uh, I'm I'm very excited about it. I think it's going to be like good complimentary podcast time suck. Well, also I think that like the people who are upset, yeah. I love that like in the community. Yeah, I've been you know following the chain mm-hmm. and and whatever. Just because we don't comment doesn't mean we're not seeing what you guys are posting. Yeah, that's true, and uh, it's just been great. Some people nah. have been posting like. Whoever was complaining about losing the bonus suck, fuck you. Yeah. And yeah, I just love that, like, the community has really rallied behind it, which means a lot to me as your spouse because yeah. no one knows more than me truly how tired you've been, yeah. how how little time we get with you at yeah. home. So it's been really nice to see everybody come out and just say, like, no, we get it. Thank yeah. you for all the content. And, yeah, I just, I that, really appreciate that. Oh, that's good. And, and, and I think there was a misconception where it's like, I saw somebody's review where they're like, oh, you're working on more like merch designs. It's like, actually, no. It's like you are working on those. Yeah, that's that's my baby. Yeah, it's it's just the uh, there is no shortcut, research assistant or not. There is no shortcut for adding that um, second episode a week. And it's like, you know, the the more we go further, the deeper I want to go. Just just my nature. And so I would rather make the once a week episodes that much better or, 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 or just keep it, you know, the same, but more enthusiasm rather than I, I just felt myself reaching this point where I realized like, okay, based on sleep alone, <laughs> I'm going to start taking shortcuts. You know, oh, like, yeah, of like, course. Like, it's like, like last night, yeah. for instance, you know, like Dan was up until yeah. 
almost 3 a.m. Yeah. Because he had to record two episodes today because yeah. his tour schedule, which his tour schedule is what supports our family. It's like, yeah. I think there's this misconception yeah. that like, oh, we're like living large or something. It's like, nah. no, like any money that is made off the podcast goes right back into the podcast. Such a passion project. Yeah, it's total passion project. It pays for the merch because we have yeah. to pay for that up front. It pays for Joe's Paisley. It yeah. pays for the the studio, right? So it's like, Dan has to tour and tour in order to support our family. And sometimes that means coming home on a Monday at mm-hmm. noon and leaving on Wednesday at noon. But not so, complaining. No, it, it's not a complaint. It's just yeah. like, I think in the spirit of yeah. transparency, it's like that's just what it's about. It's like, mm-hmm. I just started to get worried. And if you want to be mad at anybody, you can be mad at me. Cause I just told Dan, I was like, I think these bonus episodes, like we got to talk about this. I'm worried about your health. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and the true suckers mm, know. I, yeah. that, that's what I was trying to get at. Is that like uh, in in the Facebook groups? It's like I have seen so much support come out. Like we get it. Take care of yourself. And and somebody said something so great. They were like, "Listen, this is Dan's thing. At the end of the day, if he wanted to stop doing it tomorrow, he could stop doing it tomorrow. So let's be grateful for." But what, I don't want to. I know, but it yeah. was just so great how someone came out and said, "Like, let's be grateful for what we get. It's free content for the most part, unless you're a space lizard." And. Yeah. Let's enjoy this thing and let's yeah. make, it, make it the thing that you and I and, and I want as you know want to keep it going for so long for so long we talk <laughs> about like a ten yeah. year plan with this yeah at least you know which which is what makes me want to like you know it's just that thing of pride where it's like you think you can handle a certain amount of workload and then you don't want to like I don't know I don't want to I shouldn't say we as just whoever I am I don't I don't want to be like no man it's too much. But I just want to make sure, like, it's good. And part of it being good is being enthusiastic about the project. And and, and being enthusiastic takes, you know, like like time. Yeah, yeah, Lindsay's pointing to the board right now. Enthusiasm is contagious. And I felt myself coming in here sometimes and feeling like, fuck, it's too much. It's too much of a good thing, like, you know. And, and I just wanted to make sure I was having fun with it. So so a lot of it is just, you know, scaling back to make sure that the quality is good going forward. Uh and, and 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 actually, like for those of you or or any of you who think like, oh man, you know, it's just about money. No, it's, it's actually we'll, we'll make less money now because we won't have the same inventory. You know, right. but it's like it's more important to make less money in the short term to make a good product in the long term. For me, I, I just love this so much. But this project was never about money. No, it's it, it really is just about like I love this shit. So I, I hope you love the drunken celebratory twist today. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, whether even if you did really like it, it's not going to happen a lot again. So if you're a new listener again, I'm like, man, I I know that like you're probably like, what the fuck? What happened to this episode? I hope it was coherent. Uh, thanks to everyone who helped with this podcast. Thanks to Time Suck Team, uh, High Priestess the Suck, Harmony Havella Camp. Uh, she's been helping out for almost a year now. Jesse, the Guardian of Grammar Dobner, he's been helping out for over a year now. Uh, thanks to New Kid on the Block, uh, you know, Dr. Joseph Paisley. Ah! For bringing some 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 very needed enthusiasm, Joseph is a he, Joe is a positive force, man. Uh, he's he's very much a we can figure this out, we can get shit done kind of dude, and we need that here in the Suck Dungeon. And uh, I don't like the way he like he looks or acts or behaves, like he fucking creeps me out. But overall, good good egg, right? I don't like that he has two wives. I don't like that he has three or four wives, and he. <laughs> Now Joe's a good dude. He's like, Joe's a, such a good dude. So uh, good. We're excited to grow with him. So lucky thanks, to have him. Thanks to Times Like High Priest, Alex Dugan, Bit Extra Team, Danger Brain, Space Lizard, and Merch Distributor, Axis Apparel. And also Eric Radiker, man, for 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 de- developing the merch game that we have now. We wouldn't be here nah. with our merch without Eric. And, and 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 I am proud of what we have. Thanks to Sophie Detailed Deity. How do you like that nickname? Evans, for also digging deep. 
adding so much research, the more complicated than I thought it was going to be. Uh, New Orleans suck. You know, she's from New Orleans. Oh, yeah. I hope she's not disappointed. She won't be. I hope not. You know, great work. Uh, most of all, thanks to Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins. You know, for supporting this project back when she had no idea where it would lead, back when it took so much fucking time away from our, our time together. I am very, very thankful for you. Love you know, you. it's like, yeah. Oh, we got this, babe. Yeah, you never pressured me to give up on it. You know, it's like it, it took so much time away from like us. Yeah. It's good. It's good. Yeah. I so. love this community that you've <laughs> built. I love this yeah. thing that you've done. I remember like early on when it wasn't getting the numbers that it, you were like, you know, that you hoped sure, for sure, sure. or the money or whatever. And I remember talking to your sister Donna about it. Yeah. And I just said, I would never ask him to quit this because it makes him so happy. <laughs> yeah. It was so good for me to see you have a project that you were passionate about that had nothing to do with stand up or whatever. Because, like, for people who don't know, Dan always thought that, like, the ideal career would be to, uh, to be a writer. And, sure. And this is the closest, I think, that you get to get. It's like you get to be creative, yeah. you get to be funny, you get for to sure. dive into things you love. And I, I see how dedicated you are this and how passionate you are i mean you don't pull those late nights because you don't love it you pull them because nah, i worry about it all the time because you love it because you love this community you feel supported by this community and i'm so grateful that you've taken me on this journey with you well well thank you and and, and, and those of you guys who don't know but Lindsay's basically running the show <laughs> on everything now except for the uh creating the episodes and it's it's so nice and thanks to everyone who helps make this show great and thanks to you, new listener, for uh, for listening and understanding. Uh, next week, the Space Lizards have determined we keep it dark with the Candyman Killer. Uh, man, the Candyman, a.k.a. Dean Arnold Coral. Is that like the movie? The no, it's not the movie. It's uh, this guy, this fucking dirtbag, along with two teenage accomplices, abducted, raped, tortured, murdered at least 28 Ugh. teenage boys between 1970 and 73. Why boys? Well, we're going to find out. I never heard of him. I thought the Candyman Killer was who you're thinking of. The horror yeah. movie guy. You know, the Candyman, Candyman, Candyman. You say it three times in a mirror. Uh, you conjure a monster. It turns out way scarier than that. Uh, Dean was known as the Candyman because his family owned and operated a candy factory in Houston Heights. He had been known to give free candy to local children. Oh. Is he the origin of the don't take candy from strangers? <gasps> I know. I wonder. With that kind of moniker. We will find out uh, on Monday. Uh, and time now for Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. First update today reveals it's not just an anniversary for Lindsay and I, but also for some other Time Suckers. Time Sucker Kim Lofman writes, Hey, Suck Master, I wrote you last week for some sweet mattress advice <laughs> <laughs> about Lisa. And, and now I'm writing a sweet anniversary shout out on Monday's episode if you can. My husband and I are both time suckers. And when we found out we have the exact same wedding anniversary as you and the queen of the suck, I was jacked. And then it falls on a Monday episode. seems like destiny. Tim and I have been together since 2011. Finally tied the knot on the hottest day of the goddamn year. <laughs> 105 degrees and out fucking side. On that sweet August day. Little did we know that across the country on the same day, you two lovebirds were getting hitched as well. Yeah, a couple – yeah, that's right. A couple yeah. years later. Yeah, and it was fucking hot as shit. And it was shit. hot and, uh, when we did it too. So if you can fit it in, can you wish my main squeeze a happy second anniversary from me? We've got dinner reservation at a restaurant far away, and we'll listen to Money's episode on the way. It'll put a big old smile on his face. If you're pre-recorded or something, oh, it's all good. Thought I'd throw it out there. Happy anniversary to you and the queen. 
You both are so fun to see interacting on social media. Love it. Uh, love Time Suck. Hail Nimrod. Happy anniversary. Kim. And she's Aww, talking about yeah, Kim. At, yeah, at Time Suck Podcast where we harass each other. And yeah, you know what? Have a great anniversary. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Kim. Uh, I hope you do have a fantastic dinner. Lindsay and I are going to be having dinner with my grandpa Ward. Turns 86. Yep. And he is awesome. He is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Happy birthday, Pop Ward. Uh, Sucker Shane Carson writes in with a nice little update from America's <laughs> America's Butthole, uh, a.k.a. Roswell, New Mexico. Uh, he says, to the Suck Dog at Suck A Lot Records, my name is Shane. I'm writing you uh, right out of America's Butthole. I actually was born in a town named Artesia, 30 miles from Roswell. I've been listening to your podcast since January. I've been hooked since. I'm a truck driver and have moved oil rigs all around the, <laughs> all around the butthole of America <laughs> while tuned into Time Suck. Interesting fact, the area in and around uh, America's butthole, the Permian Basin, produces around 32% of America's crude oil. So it's safe to say America's butthole gets... <laughs> 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 he writes, so it's safe to say America's butthole gets drilled more than Luciferus. LOL. I've been... <laughs> I've been meaning to write to, to you to tell you that since the first time I heard you mention Roswell, since then we have got shout outs on a number of your episodes. So I wanted to let you know that you have fans here too. I get, uh, uh, please, uh, please give a shout out to my chick, Melanie. Uh, she loves you very much. Uh, I'm trying to get her on board with Time Suck along with all my friends, family, and everyone who will listen. Your podcast is a shit and the best I've come across. So keep the content coming. Love the cult of the curious, Shane. Oh, thank you, Shane. Thank you very, very much, man. Uh, got a lot more werewolf trickery emails sent this past week. This one is from Time Sucker David Vandergriff, who writes, You got me again. Only the second time listener. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Only the second time ever. The first being in the Blood Countess. Oh, yeah, the Elizabeth Bathory episode. Uh, listening to the werewolf suck and was in the middle of texting a friend of mine who also listens to Time Suck. I was telling him how the beginnings of werewolf mythos were a lot less glamorous than I would have imagined. When you revealed that you made it all up, you dick, you got me good. Hail Nimrod, David. And David, of course, is referring to uh, my history of werewolf belief when I said it revolved around having sex with dogs in caves in France uh, thousands of years ago. Yeah, a lot of people. Who am I married to? A lot of people got that. Uh, And last for today, a soccer named Spencer, whose last name will be left out, sent a message to the atomic bomb-based town, Oak Ridge, Tennessee. He lives in. Uh, he says, hello, you beautiful mush mouth, master of suck, fourth leg of Bojangles, Dr. Reverend Covens. I'm currently listening to your Area 51 show. I was doing schoolwork. Heard you mention a little town in Knoxville, Tennessee, Oak Ridge. I was born and raised in Oak Ridge, and yes, I glow, I glow in the dark. <laughs> but, we, but we for real have frogs that do surprisingly glow in the dark, hard to find. I have been following you in the suck since my little brother introduced me to the suck around the time of the Slender Man. I have loved the show ever since and binge entire back catalog about a month after I was introduced. Just wanted to say thank you for helping me more than you can ever know. Oh, man. Uh, I love that, man. Thanks, Spencer. Uh, and, 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 and then says, uh, oh, man, where did I leave I've off? I've been down here. So drunk. I've been through a lot in this I've past year. I've been through year. a lot this past year or so. And listening to you just talk about really cool stuff has always helped me decompress and get my shit together. I've also loved to hear you grow as a person since the start of the suck. And it's really been an inspiration that people can change when they see the faults and they want to better themselves. Again, thanks for everything. I can't wait until I'm not a broke grad student to become part of the secret suck. Keep up the amazing work, Spence. You fucking faithful servant of the suck. Uh, And he says, P.S. I don't plan on you reading this on the podcast. Well, I did. Uh, But based on the slim chance you do, please make up a name and don't use my real one. Thanks. Why? I didn't use the last name. 
So I'm going to say you're Spence fucking McClellan. Spencer McClellan. <laughs> that, that That's your road in. Beautiful. Spencer McClellan, who works at the uh, Ontario Jerkoff factory, making sperm capsules. Do you know that... Uh, yeah. When my cousins were little and my yeah. grandma used to give them baths and they get to that age she, where... Your grandma used to jerk them off? No. She, you know, like kids get to that age where they're like weird about being naked. Oh, yeah. She yeah. told my two male cousins she used to work in a penis factory. What? Oh, I, yeah, you did say that. <laughs> yeah, because they were like super worried about her seeing them naked. She was like, oh, don't worry about it. I've seen all the all the penises. And they were like, what? She's like, oh, yeah, I used to work in a penis factory. I've seen big ones, little ones, short ones, fat ones. So what you want me to tell Spencer, uh, people, is that he works in a penis factory. Exactly. And that's all today for times uh, for today's Time Sucker Update. Thanks, Time Suckers. I needed that. We all did. <laughs> and that's all for today, Time Suckers. Thanks for making this such a fun ride. I'm not uh, one for sticking around creative projects other than stand up for very long, but this one has got me. It never gets old. It's never easy. And you, but you make it the most rewarding shit ever. Uh, don't smash someone in the head with an axe this week. Maybe lock your door at night if you leave axes laying around. Thanks for all the sucking you've done. Uh, I, I, I sure as hell hope you continue to keep on sucking. Hey, Mom. First things first, thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help. And yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.